from Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. Hello, everyone. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you, as always. Plenty to talk about. We're going to do some January 6th work. I know today is January 8th, but I'm not quite finished with the January 6th story. And uh, we've got the great Mike Goodwin coming on. Michael Goodwin's going to come on in a few moments and talk about his fabulous column in the New York Post, uh, the Democrats' desperate January 6th spin. I want to talk about the uh, jobs number and Joe Biden. In fact, I want to, let me begin with it. Not so much the jobs number per se, although it's kind of a mixed bag, uh, soft on the non-farm payrolls, but very, very strong on household unemployment down, wages up. The Federal Reserve is going to have to be tightening interest rates. But it was so interesting to me what Joe Biden said early yesterday, right after the numbers came out. And he kind of had this riff about he's changing economic policy. I'll read you this just just quickly. Um, He says, for too long, Republicans have thrown around terms like pro-growth and supply-side economics to drive an economic agenda that didn't deliver enough growth and supply more wealth to those who already were well off, very well off, From day one, my economic agenda has been different. It's been about taking a fundamentally new approach to our economy. Right? That was his attack on supply-siders like me, like Laffer, like Steve Moore and Kevin Hassett, Donald Trump, Ronald Reagan, John F. Kennedy, Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge, Andrew Mellon, supply-siders, cut tax rates, lower tax rates. So at the margin, the next hour worked, the next dollar invested. uh, It will pay more after tax than... uh, than would have otherwise been the case. Or as Laffer puts it, what are you doing? as Laffer puts it, if you tax something more, you get less of it. If you tax something less, you get more of it. So, you know, if you tax work less, you'll get more work. If you tax investment less, you'll get more investment. If you tax the whole economy less, you'll get a bigger economy. The whole trick here is to grow the pie larger. Remember that? Grow the economic pie larger. Now, Mr. Biden doesn't get that, needless to say. And his idea is to make people pay their fair share, quote unquote. Let's tax rich people because they're too rich and then redistribute the income to the non-rich. I guess to the middle or to the lower, but, 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 and, and, and by the way, that's a completely phony idea. I'll get back to that in a second. Completely unfactual. But I mean, the rich paid the freight. They paid the top one percent pays forty percent of our taxes, income taxes, federal income taxes. Okay, what you think they make twenty percent of the income, 
but they pay 40% of the taxes. You think that's enough? Here in New York, city and state, the top 1% probably pays uh, close to 60% of all the taxes, maybe more, at these outrageous high tax rates. And that's true for the big blue states like California, Connecticut, New Jersey, Illinois, anyway, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just a bald-faced lie. Of course, they pay their fair share. But um, the socialist view uh, always has class warfare, and that's what Biden is getting at, more class warfare. Didn't deliver enough growth, supplied more wealth to those who are already very well off. From day one, my economic agenda has been different. It's been about taking a fundamentally new approach to our economy. I just want to make one more point here. Uh, It's not just taxing rich people. It's also taxing rich people in order to provide money for a larger and larger and larger government. Hence the term big government socialism, which was coined by my great friend Newt Gingrich, who has been on this show many times during the years. And, of course, the whole Biden Build Back Better bill is all about that. Five trillion more dollars in spending. He's got two trillion in taxes, so it's <laughs> deficit spending is going to be huge, though he keeps denying and he says it's paid for. Of course it's not paid for. I don't want to pay for spending anyway. Don't get me wrong. But and of course the, the anomaly, just a little anomaly in here, and that is the Democrats do want to help rich people, right? Because they want to restore the state and local tax deduction, which uh, the Trump tax cuts whittled down to ten thousand dollars. They want to restore it to eighty thousand or hundred thousand. So that's just bailing out well to do people in the big blue democratic states. Very ironic, New York and Hollywood and Silicon Valley, et cetera, et cetera. So even his class warfare, isn't, he got that wrong, too. But I digress. I mean, I don't want to raise taxes to increase spending. I don't want to raise taxes to increase entitlement spending. I don't want to raise taxes to increase entitlement spending, which, by the way, is not only under the Biden plan is not only becoming a middle class plus entitlement, I mean, families of four or $500,000 a year would be eligible for many of his new spending programs. That includes Green New Deal programs. That includes uh, child allowance programs, middle-class entitlements. No work requirements. That's the other thing. Do I want my taxes to go up? Do you want your taxes to go up in order to finance more entitlement spending, more welfare spending, and not ask or compel people to work in order to be eligible? Huh? Really? Workfare? Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich, 25 years ago, workfare worked. Greatest welfare reform in history. The Bidens have taken that down. They've broken the link between work and government assistance. We've always had that link going back to FDR. Green Green. Great Society broke some of it. Clinton and Gingrich restored it. This is the stuff they're trying to peddle. 
Just give everybody money. Illegal immigrants. They get welfare. First, they have no work requirements. $450,000 per child because they got separated from their parents because they came over illegally. By the way, I'm in favor of immigration. Immigration made this country great. Some of our greatest entrepreneurs, ordinary working class folks, but you have to be legal. Legal, please, not illegal. Law and order, which Biden disrespects time and time again. Law and order. He disrespects that. He disrespects the jury system. But the point I'm trying to make is he's got this new model. He says, I've... My economic agenda has been different. It's been about taking a fundamentally new approach to our economy. And that's a socialist approach. It's a big government spending and taxing and regulating approach. It's what Steve Forbes calls modern socialism. Use the regulatory state, all the alphabet agencies, antitrust Banking, health care, energy, the war against fossil fuels, the faux, the faux arguments about climate change. We're going to have Bjorn Lomborg come on later. He's our great climate change expert. Not denying that there's a climate issue. I am denying these crazy solutions, which are going to cost a fortune and wreck the economy and destroy jobs left and right. That's his new approach. The thing about Biden's new approach is the country doesn't like it. That's what the polls tell us. That's why he couldn't get Build Back Better through. That's why Joe Manchin has stood on his hind legs for all year long and said no. And Kirsten Cinema, And you know what? Other uh, moderate Democrats who have not really surfaced visibly, they've let Manchin do the heavy lifting, but fine. The thing won't pass. They didn't have the votes. Schumer says he's going to vote again. No one knows when. It will lose again. No work requirements, unlimited entitlements, no means testing, no tough eligibility. Come on. It's not the American way. I'm sorry. It is not the American way. Now, regarding yesterday's statement specifically, my response to Mr. Biden is, yeah, you have a brand new approach to our economy. You know what that approach is? You have generated the first serious Big bout of inflation in four decades. Four decades. 40 years. That's what he's done. I mean, the Federal Reserve has actually been trying to get inflation a little higher, although I don't really agree with that. But the Biden spending plans, to which Manchin has consistently objected, thankfully, Save America, kill the bill. Save America, kill the bill. The $2 trillion spending was unnecessary last March, and it increased demand significantly, even though the emergency economy was over. Biden was handed a strong V-shaped recovery by my former boss, Donald Trump, and his policies of low taxes, reduced regulations, and energy independence. Silver platter. 
If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So Biden's got, yep, it's a fundamentally new approach to our economy. It's called big government socialism. It's called punishing success, taxing success, regulating the entire economy. State run. Not free enterprise. Not free market capitalism. But big government socialism. So... $1.9 trillion bill last March triggered a massive increase in demand. And at the same time, we had all these pandemic-related supply shortages and bottlenecks. A lot of that's because of, again, government regulations, work rules, union rules, People not unloading containers because the ports weren't open. Instead of 24-7, it was 9 to 3, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., that kind of thing. No forward planning by the Biden, so they just stimulated demand. You get Democratic economists, Larry Summers, Jason Furman, others, who warned about the inflation, and sure enough, it came. That's what big spending will do. You're pouring money into Business and consumers who didn't need the money because they were going back to work. (laughs) Doling money out to Democratic interest groups. And by the way, wherever possible, providing government loans and credits, not to everybody, not on the basis of merit or need, but on the basis of race and color and so-called minority status. We're going to talk about that in a bit. This business in New York, this Governor Kathy Hochul, literally parceling out therapies, monoclonal therapies for COVID and tests and others on the basis of race. Holy cow. Is there anything worse than that? Is there anything more un-American than that? By the way, it's unconstitutional. Talking to my pal Steve Miller about it on the Cudlow show last night on Fox Business. They're going to bring a lawsuit. Actually, he was talking on John Katsimatidis' radio show yesterday afternoon. I was talking about it with um, former Governor David Patterson, who said this should not have been done those neighborhoods that had the greatest need might have sufficed. That might have been the right criteria. But race? Color? Really? More critical race theory. More racism. Now it's bad to be a white person. It's like the teachers in the schools. Teaching critical race theory. White people are bad. They're all a bunch of white supremacists. Declaration of Independence, white supremacists. Constitution, white supremacists. Nonsense. Nonsense. Equality and freedom. Equality. Opportunity. You, You can't force everyone to finish at the same time 
That's what they think is equity. You can't do that. That's a socialist communist idea, which never worked in the Soviet Union or elsewhere or Cuba or Venezuela. Come on. We have equality of opportunity at the starting line by law. That's fabulous. That's America. Now they want to place racial stipulation. We've seen this before. In that last in last winter's one point nine trillion dollar emergency spending plan, so called, there are all kinds of provisions that were limited to people targeted by race and color and skin. Oh my gosh. Not even income. So that's what Joe Biden hath wrought. Now I come back to the inflation issue. He was handed a V-shaped recovery with virtually no inflation, less than 2%. Four years, Donald Trump's inflation rate, 1.9% at an annual rate. Got it? Today, a year later, inflation is running at 7%. That is Joe Biden's fundamentally new approach to our economy. To quote it. To quote it. And he wants his Build Back Better bill, which is scored gimmick-free by the Congressional Budget Office as a $5.1 trillion spending bill, which would add $3 trillion of debt, which would cause even greater inflation. And it has been enabled and financed by off-the-charts, record-breaking money creation by our central bank, the Federal Reserve. The Fed has enabled and accommodated and financed the government spending. It's a lethal one-two combination, which has caused an inflation tax, which has damaged the middle class and the lower-income folks the most. Okay, that's Biden. Fundamentally new approach to our economy. That's Biden. I suggested last night on Cudlow, on the Fox Business Show, Cudlow, that Biden ought to fire his senior staff. His new chief economist, his new head of the Council of Economic Advisors should be Senator Joe Manchin, who's the only Democrat, or one of the few Democrats, who have correctly predicted that excessive spending and money creation will cause higher inflation, which is very unpopular. Take a look at the polls. Wages are rising, but after inflation, they're not rising much. And they may be underwater soon. Because of the assault on fossil fuels, oil, gas, coal, because of that, Gasoline prices shooting way up. World oil prices shooting way up. We've cut back on the supply of oil produced here. We're not energy independent anymore. We'd like Russia and Saudi Arabia to produce more oil. Not us. Go figure. What what sense does that make? Or does global warming not apply to Russia and Saudi Arabia? I mean, really, it's just the stupidest thing you've ever heard. That's why the polls are killing Biden. Kill him. Guy's in the high 30s now. His economics are so unpopular. And he gets up there yesterday morning and talks about his fundamentally new economic plan. Supply-side growth doesn't work. Yeah, well, it did work. 
<clears throat> it did work. We're going to have uh, former Trump CEO chair Tyler Goodspeed come on later in the show and talk about uh, all the numbers. But just just to lay some things out, actual factoids, blue-collar, middle-income families, typical family, family of four, saw real income go up by Four thousand four hundred dollars in twenty nineteen alone, following the Trump tax cuts. Forty four hundred bucks. It's a bigger increase in that one year than the combined totals during Bush and Obama. And and the thing is, real wages for the bottom ten percent rose eight and a half percent. For the top only five percent. Real wealth for the bottom rose 25%, whereas the top only 9%. Business investment surged, productivity gained. That's financed the real wage increase. And we had record low unemployment. Not for just rich people. Look at the facts from the Labor Department and the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Federal Reserve's Consumer Finance Surveys, look at the actual factoids, not some fourth-rate political pap, which comes from Biden. Look at the factoids. The biggest gainers, not only in wages, incomes, and wealth, the biggest gainers came low unemployment among minority groups, African Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian-Americans, women, most of them 50-year low unemployment rates, 50-year low unemployment rates, and poverty fell significantly, and child poverty fell significantly, and inequality, income inequality, fell significantly. All that's being reversed under Biden. Because that's what high inflation does. The middle and lower ends get completely screwed by high inflation. It's the cruelest tax of all. So, just a bunch of flat-out lies. Supply side doesn't work. Wrong. By the way, Joe Biden is such a phony. Really. Ronald Reagan... I served under Reagan a long time ago, 40 years ago. Reagan was a big tax-cutting supply sider. He believed in the incentive model of growth. So he had gigantic tax cuts in 1981. Guess who voted for it? Guess. Guess, guess, guess. Joe Biden. Senator Joe Biden. Wait a minute. Reagan had another round of gigantic tax cuts in 1986. Reagan brought the top income tax rate down to 28%. Biden wants to take it to close to 50%. He's not going to get it because his bill's not going to pass, but that's what his goal is. Reagan had two brackets, 15 and 28. Biden voted for it in 86. So you got yourself, I don't know, either Biden was smarter then, which is possible, or he's suffering today from a tremendous round of amnesia 
Or he's just being a hypocrite. You know, a hypocrite. Supply side. Biden voted for supply side tax cuts. And by the way, all politicians rejoiced because the Reagan tax cuts literally unleashed 30 years of prosperity. Okay? 30 years. And then we went into a 20-year slump, and now Trump's tax cuts revived that prosperity, especially for middle- and lower-income people, the salts of the earth, the backbone of the country. And I'll go all the way back to Democrat John F. Kennedy and his famous tax cuts in the early 60s, which launched a 10-year prosperity. I wrote a book on this subject, by the way. I wrote a book on this subject, the JFK tax cuts, the Reagan tax cuts. It's called JFK and the Reagan Revolution. The book was out in 2016, as I recall. Anyway, it worked. Go all the way back, all the way back to the 1920s, after World War I, Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge, and Andrew Mellon slashed taxes. And we had a tremendous prosperity until goofball Herbert Hoover came in and raised taxes and raised tariffs, and then FDR took over with the New Deal and raised government control of the whole economy with high taxes and wrecked the whole story. So we need a little history here. We need a little history here. That's my problem with Joe Biden. I want to say two other quick things that we will delve into. One of the things is the teachers' union. Left-wing, critical race theory, woke teachers' union going on strike all across the country, but especially in Chicago. And in fact, the left-wing mayor, Lori Lightfoot, finally came out and said it's an illegal action. It damages the kids, keeping them out of school. Education damage, psychological damage, social damaging, just like masking. These teachers don't want to teach. They want more money and more money, and they teach less and less. They're the first ones to pop up and cry, uncle, and they don't want to teach. And and here's my quick point. We'll get to this later in the show, but I want to inject it into the thought stream right here at the top. This should be a Reagan moment. What do I mean by that? In 1981, when the air traffic controllers, a government union, went on strike, it was illegal, and you know what? Reagan fired them. Fired them. And replaced them with non-union workers who kept the air traffic going. I would say now, fire striking teachers. Fire them. So far here in New York, our authorities... uh, are not faced with a strike. The the union themselves, the progressives in the union, want to go on strike. But so far, we haven't seen it. But we've seen it in cities, Detroit, a whole bunch of cities. Fire them. Just go and fire them. 
And uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn told us on the Kudlow show yesterday in Fox Business, yeah, I could fire him. Also, take the money away. Take the money that was given to them in these various COVID relief bills. Take the money away. They're not going to work, no money. I say fire them. Put America, put America's kids first. Put America's kids first. So we're going to take a break, run some ads, get up to date. Michael Goodwin's coming on. We're going to talk some more about January 6th and the Democrats' hypocrisy, what their real agenda is. Nobody likes January 6th. January 6th was a calamity. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to defend what happened. But I am going to criticize the Democrats. They hidden agenda. They want to fix. They want to nationalize elections. They want to distract from their failures. That's what January 6th was about this week, and they're going to keep doing it. It's not going to work, but they're going to keep doing it. Later in the show, we're going to talk about the Federal Reserve with former Governor Kevin Warsh. We're going to talk about Trump tax cuts with Tyler Goodspeed. We'll do money in politics and the stock market. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. Let's get back to work. We're going to bring in the great Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist, Pulitzer Prize winner, great friend. Uh, wrote a great column in the New York Post about this whole January 6th story. First of all, Michael Goodwin, welcome back. Happy New Year, Michael. Thank you, Larry. Same to you. Great to be <laughs> right. with you. Yeah, you wrote a terrific column. Look, um, everybody knows January 6th was the calamity. Everybody knows that. But the question is, with this Democratic jihad, they want to compare this to Pearl Harbor, which is a disgusting comparison. Disgusting comparison. 2,400 people died in Pearl Harbor. 3,000 people died at 9-11. Kamala Harris should be ashamed of herself. She probably isn't, but she should be. But, but... They are weaponizing January 6th for partisan purposes. That's your key point, and it's a great point. And tell us more about what you're thinking here. Well, look, I think it's very hard for me to divorce the theater over January 6th from the reality of the Biden presidency, which is that he is taking on water at an alarming rate. Uh, His poll numbers are sinking like a stone, uh, particularly on issues uh, regarding the economy, inflation, etc., not to mention foreign policy, which I think is a ticking time bomb in terms of our issues with Iran, with Russia, with China. Um, and so I think that, uh, and of course, the pandemic. I mean, this this failure even to get the testing straight after all this time. Um, I was reading something yesterday that, it's still going to be weeks more before people begin to receive those tests in the mail that he promised in uh, the middle of December. Uh, so th- this failure on testing, uh, all these other failures that I mentioned, uh, January 6th for them is a good way to distract. And so they create theater around it. Uh, it's this endless investigation, which I said reminds me of uh, impeachment of Trump 3.0. This committee that uh, the same old old suspects are running. Uh, So I I think when you put it all together, 
what they've done is taken a legitimately worrisome and troublesome event of January 6th, which, which was a catastrophe in many ways, not in terms of loss of life and that sort of thing, but a real breakdown in our respect for government, in our trust in election outcomes, etc. And they've taken that and they've gone too far. And to, they, they, they stretch the truth until it breaks. And then you say, so what is their motive? Then their motive is not about January 6th. It's not about protecting democracy. It's about partisanship. It's all about partisanship. It's all about getting their legislation passed, break, you know, whether it's uh, wrecking the filibuster in the Senate, uh, corrupting the reconciliation process, or uh, packing the court. I mean, all of these things that they've talked about doing and want to do and busting out the budget, this is what they really care about. January 6th to them is just a happy coincidence with their agenda at this point. Yeah, you know, I think um, in addition to deflecting and distracting uh, from his failed agenda and the unraveling of his presidency, I think this other point is really important. I, I watched Biden, you know, give his uh, spe- his uh, speech in the morning, Thursday morning. Uh, Kamala Harris, uh, other Democratic spokespeople, you know, Michael, they want to make a case for federalizing or nationalizing election law. And you're right; right. it's all tied up with the filibuster. That's exactly right. Uh, th- this isn't going to go. It's never going to. Manchin's not going to. He's not going to be for it. Cinema's not going to be for it. They're not going to let him change filibuster. But you know, this is about um, unlimited mail-in ballots. This is about voter IDs. Uh, this is about uh, uh, liberal Silicon Valley zillionaires like Zuckerberg, who spent uh, what four hundred fifty million dollars to place. Uh, what should be uh, nonpartisan people into election operations, but of course steering it towards the Democrats. I mean, that this is about the, the, a futile attempt, a futile attempt to uh, overrule state legislatures and nationalize elections. Yes, and and uh, ultimately just for partisan purposes, not for the good of the country. Uh, not for any kind of uh, middle ground that people would recognize and could rally around. I mean, this is all partisanship. I mean, Biden, you mentioned Biden's speech. I mean, I watched it, and then his clumsy segue into supporting this uh, this voting, which they call voting rights, but uh, it actually, yes, extends voting rights to those who are not registered or eligible uh, in real practice. But it was like a cheap uh, late-night TV salesman. You know, come on, come on, you'll get two for the price of one if you order now. Uh, I mean, that's what he sounded like. And it was just so jarring that if you really think January 6th is a solemn event, then why don't you focus on events surrounding January 6th with a, with a with an equal approach to it. So when Nancy Pelosi appoints a committee and then throws off the Republicans who won't toe the line and appoints uh, Liz Cheney and Kinzinger, uh, the ghost the ghost is revealed. I mean, this is not about finding the truth. 
This is about weaponizing that event. And then just quickly, I mean, your your reference to Kamala Harris comparing it to Pearl Harbor and 9-11. I mean, again, it's, that's one of those moments you say, forget it. Turn off the channel. These people aren't serious. Yes. Um, what What's wrong with voter ID? I've seen every darn poll. Uh, we're going to have Scott Rasmussen come on later in the show, talk about polling. But everybody wants voter ID except for the Democrats, except for Biden. I mean, it's like they're taking January 6th and juxtaposing that with voter ID, with mail-in ballots, uh, with, you know, harvesting mail-in ballots. Uh, to me, this is the kind of anti-common sense that has made Biden so unpopular. I agree with you, Larry. And, you know, you mentioned that uh, just uh, cinema and mansion uh, blocking the the filibuster demolition. Uh, Just think of it. That means there are 48 Democrats in the Senate who are willing to take that radical route. Uh, I mean, this is this is one of the more shocking events of our times, not that the radical left is radical, but what used to be sort of the center left has become so radical. And that, to me, is the real problem. And so when you have the Democratic Party united behind behind these things or 98 percent of the Democratic Party united behind those kinds of things and you want to demolish any protections against voter fraud and at the same time not understanding that many people in this country now don't trust one another they don't trust their government and they shouldn't they should always you know trust but verify their own government and so for the government to say oh you can trust that there will be no cheating. You, you know, we can we can do mail-in ballots to everybody. We don't have to guard the drop-off boxes, and we can have them everywhere. Uh, we can have harvesting in the in the nursing homes. And uh, so, given given the recent history in this country, for the Democrats to go down that road, they are courting trouble. They are they are almost guaranteeing that there will be more events like January sixth because they are instilling distrust in people. And th- this, is, this remains one of the mysteries of Joe Biden's presidency. He knows this is an issue. He knows there are problems of, of this great chasm of polarization and how dangerous it's become. And he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. And at some point, people aren't, just aren't going to take it anymore. And that's what I think the Democrats are really courting is more trouble in this country, not less. Uh, Why doesn't anybody want to address what I think are serious issues related to the lack of security uh, in the Capitol? Um, There are a couple thousand, as I understand it, Michael Goodwin, there are a couple of thousand uh, Capitol Hill cops. Yeah, 2,000, I believe. Right. But no... I don't know, no more than 200 were ever mobilized. I'm, I'm not sure they even got to that. But there are so many questions, I mean, including Pelosi refused to call in the National Guard. Uh, the Capitol Hill police were not prepared. Now, to me, those are serious questions that should be addressed. They're not partisan questions. They're security questions. But I don't hear any of that. I just hear the usual jihad against against Trump and, you know, Republicans and whatnot. Well, 
no, that's precisely right. That uh, this this you could have done a legitimate commission to on you know as as the government has done successfully in the past before whether it was the 9-11 commission the commissions on social security where you could have had a bipartisan roster of respected people uh to to chip in and to take a serious look at this but if your whole objective from the get-go is a partisan outcome that favors your party uh, because you have the gavel. I mean, that's why that's why those impeachments failed. They were only about partisanship. There, there was not a scintilla of sincerity about what was good for the country or what the facts really are. I mean, from Adam Schiff, cook, Schiff cooking up testimony and and misdescribing it and leaking only parts of testimony. I mean, all of these things that we have seen the last four or five years, uh, and now we're just supposed to to believe that one side has all the truth. One side has all the integrity, and we should all just bow down and put on our our kintocloth and and kneel with them, and we will all be fine. I mean, this is this is madness if they think the country as a whole is going to swallow this, or that if they can reduce the the unbelievers to a twenty or twenty five percent, it's much bigger than that. Every poll about politics shows you almost an even split in the country uh, on any on any issues. I mean, which is why Congress is so evenly split. That is the true nature of the country right now. Have you followed this story, Michael Goodwin? Um, poorly reported, but last summer the FBI came out uh, after studying it they came out with the conclusion that there was no January 6th uh, conspiracy, collusion, et cetera, et cetera, people meeting in hotel rooms or planning this thing out in advance. I mean, I think that the Democrats are trying to make the case uh, that Trump and people around Trump led this and were therefore responsible for this. But the reality is it was more spontaneous combustion. But the FBI had a study. It was reported. I kept the Reuters article. It's one of the few that I could find where this was uh, reported. Uh, but nobody wants to talk about that. There was no There was no conspiracy. No, no. I mean, look, there, there may have been conspirators in small numbers, small groups. Uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to say that there are none. But this question of a large planned insurrection uh, driven by the Trump White House. Uh, I mean, that's what they're trying to prove that Mark Meadows and and Jim Jordan and and uh, anybody who talked to them was somehow part of a large conspiracy. Laura Engel, Sean Hannity. I mean, it's ridiculous what they've tried to stitch together out of whole cloth here, because as, as, as we both say, look, I think Donald Trump made some serious mistakes in that in that. Period uh, mm-hmm. after the election and before Biden's inauguration, his speech on January sixth, I wrote at the time, and I still believe was too hot. Mm-hmm. But I do not believe that he inspired 
or in any way is responsible for the uh, riot at the Capitol. Uh, and I, I, do, I do wish he had spoken out sooner while it was going on. But, but these, are, these are degrees of, of issues. They're not the whole picture that the Democrats are trying to weave for us. And so I agree with you, Larry, there, there, there may there were clearly hooligans within there. They were they brought crowbars to break windows and that sort of things. You don't carry crowbars to a to a rally or to a protest unless you have something else in mind. And so there were clearly some people who had something else in mind. But they I don't think they even amount to the 700 people who were arrested because none of them have been charged with insurrection or anything close to it. So you're right. They're they're painting a picture that's false. And so as a result, we're not getting the facts of what really happened. Did you talk about the lack of security? I mean, that whole issue. Pelosi supposedly played a role in not allowing them to activate sooner. I mean, it goes down down the line. I mean, we I saw videos. I'm, I'm sure you did too of police officers opening the doors to yeah. let the protesters in, mm-hmm. even as other protesters are hand to hand combat with cops outside. So there's a there's a whole mess of things that don't add up here. You know, going all the way back to the election. I had always hoped, and there were a group of senior policy people in the White House, Michael Goodwin. Um, I'm not going to name names, but there's only a handful of us. We always wanted POTUS to pivot and, you know, spend the remaining couple of months, A, doing the government's business because you still had business going on. I mean, I I didn't resign. A bunch of us didn't resign. for the simple reason <clears throat> that we needed adults in the building to conduct the right. government's business. Um, Waddell and O'Brien, myself and some others, uh, uh, Berkey, uh, Rollins. But we'd always wanted hope that POTUS would pivot and talk about his achievements and successes and policies, which I think Michael Goodwin today are very popular. Take the man out, look at the policies themselves, you know, Biden has botched the economy badly, uh, as you noted. Biden has botched the foreign policy. We may be on the verge of a huge problem with Ukraine, uh, with Putin in the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if he had, I, I, I just, that was my disappointment. And I've expressed it to the president. I talk to the president all the time. I'm very, I'm very glad that he didn't uh, have this big press conference on Thursday. Right. I think that was a very wise decision. But I think it would have had a, it would have turned out better for him if he had said, all right, we lost this time, but we may be back. Here's what we did. Here's why it worked. Because people are, you know, you look at the polls now. People like Trump's policies. In fact, you know, I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but people yearn for the calmness and prosperity of the Trump years compared to what we have today. Yes, tongue, I mean. Tongue-in-cheek. Some of that tongue-in-cheek, but, but not entirely tongue-in-cheek. No, you cannot feel confident with Joe Biden in the White House. I mean, just physically, you know, the frailty in that and that the, the, the forgetfulness, the, you know, the, the language. I mean, what is he talking about? Uh, these stories that he tells that aren't true, but he keeps telling them. Uh, you cannot feel confident with that leadership. It doesn't project strength. 
uh, in his person, and it's and his policies don't project strength either. Whether it's with sort of begging Iran and all of that. Mm. Uh, but look, Larry, I, I completely agree with you on Trump, and and I've uh, I remain disappointed that he has, a, as I said in this column, s- appears to be making. Uh, the events of last year, that the, his conclusion that the election was stolen, that seems to be becoming a litmus test for people he will endorse. Um, and I think this is a, this is a tragic mistake. Uh, look, I, I think there were lots of questions about the election. I think there's lots of irregularities. But you cannot say forever it was stolen. And just expect people to believe that. It's not going to work. Michael Goodwin, good to reconnect. Great column. Appreciate it. Hope to talk to you soon. Thanks very much. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. All right. We had jobs report yesterday. And we have a lot of mutterings from the Federal Reserve about how they're going to recover from the mistakes of this past year, 2021. And I have this sense that it's not going to be pretty as we move through this with a 7% inflation rate that is not going to go back down anytime soon. All the geniuses who talked about temporary inflation are wrong. I've already nominated Senator Joe Manchin to be the new chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. Fat chance Biden won't do that. But let's talk to somebody who knows a whole lot about this my great friend Kevin Warsh, he's a former Federal Reserve Board member himself, currently a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, teaches some school at the Stanford uh, Business School, if I'm not mistaken. So, Kevin Warsh, Happy New Year. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Larry. Uh, thanks very much for having me. You're the hardest working man in this business. I talk to you at all hours of the day and now on Saturdays. <laughs> right. What the heck? I love the work. So, hey, Kevin, um, I had uh, our friend Stephen Mnuchin uh, was on the show, uh, the TV show, uh, Tuesday, I think. And he kind of put the wood to the Fed. Um, He said they're behind the curve. Um, They shouldn't have run um, easy money, zero interest rates, negative. We got negative real. We have negative 7% real uh, Fed funds rate with a 3.9% unemployment rate. Uh, Ed Hyman, uh, very you know, widely followed Wall Street economist, uh, talking about all the huge money creation and reserve injections by the Fed. They're running an emergency policy. The emergency is far, far from, far, far over, and they're still doing it. And um, I know you've been a critic, and I know you've written in the Wall Street Journal op-ed pieces and so forth. So what's going to happen here? What should happen here? So, uh, Larry, I've been a critic for a long time, including, I have to admit, when Secretary Mnuchin was the Treasury Secretary of the United States. (laughs) I knew that was coming. (laughs) So so this inflation problem has been chasing the Fed for years at the speed of a turtle, and it somehow caught them unaware. So these these problems are long in the making, Larry. Um, But I I agree with, with your lead, which is 2021 will go down as a year in which the Fed really made 
deep and dangerous uh, uh, problems, bad decisions in the conduct of monetary policy. And in 21 and 22, the American people are going to pay the price of the most regressive tax of them all, and that's the 7% inflation you're talking about. Um, they projected a year ago that inflation in, at the end of 2021 would be 1.8%. It's more than triple that. And they're using the same models to project at the end of 2022, it'll be 2.6% like you. I wouldn't bet on that. Yes, that's really, you know, um, so one of the smart guys inside the Fed is Jim Bullard. And in his own diplomatic way, uh, I think he's trying to move the ball. He says, guy, they should start raising rates in March. I think they should start raising their target rate right now. Because the longer they wait, I mean, uh, Mnuchin is right at one point. They are behind the eight ball. They're way behind the eight ball. So the longer they wait, the harder it's going to be. And, Kevin, I guess one worry is that the inflation rate is actually going to get worse, not better. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. The longer they wait, the fewer choices they have. And ultimately, if they want to bring inflation back to 2%, to anything like price stability, by waiting so long and continuing to, to compound their mistake, they're going to make what they have to do to offset it even more, higher interest rates than would otherwise be needed, mm-hmm. pulling the punch bowl away with a, with a much sterner uh, hangover the next morning. So it's really dangerous. And like you, I think they, they, they've missed opportunities. But just to be provocative, as I, as I normally try to be in clear with you, Uh, They've got a meeting at the end of January. You and I said this on your TV show before their December meeting. I'll say it again. They need to go cold turkey at the meeting, the end of January. They need to say, as of today or the end of the month of January, we are done buying assets. Right now, Larry, they find themselves in the craziest position I've ever heard of. They are buying assets and increasing the balance sheet, which is just making policy even looser, driving inflation even higher. At the same point, they're leaking to the Wall Street Journal and putting in their minutes that they're going to be shrinking their balance sheet very soon. So one hand is pushing in one direction, the other in the other. It is it is incoherent. And more important, it's really dangerous for the economy, especially for people that don't own financial assets that are suffering from this inflation. I think it was you and your uh, recent op-ed piece in the journal. The Fed has enabled all of this government spending, and that really is the root source of inflation. Yeah, that's right. Our, our, you know, our, our, our friend and, and longtime colleague, Milton Friedman, would say that inflation was, is and always was a monetary phenomenon. But I think if Milton were with us today, Larry, now that he sees that the distinction between what Congress is spending and what the Fed is purchasing, I think he'd put a big asterisk next to that and say, it's monetary and fiscal policy today because the Fed is enabling and monetizing this debt. And so I do not believe we would have this explosion of debt if the Fed hadn't been the dominant purchaser of these Treasury securities. And that has given members of Congress, frankly, on both sides, an opportunity to spend money because they've got a a willing purchaser just in the next building over. And like you, I think that this, this doesn't end well, though we've never run this experiment, so it's hard to know exactly when it does end. Well, you know, I'm interested. I was there's been a lot of talk now 
Um, there's going to be a soft landing, Kevin, a soft landing. Um, so I've been around quite some time watching the Fed. I actually started my whole career in open market operations at the New York Fed. Um, God, that's like almost 50 years ago. Anyway, you think there's going to be a soft landing? I have my doubts. I mean, you and I are great optimists, pal. And yeah. I would say they've made a soft landing here very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um In the post-war era, when the Fed is this far behind and has to raise rates, there is zero positive experiences, meaning in all cases it led to a recession. And they are further behind the curve. They can't even see the curve on this racetrack, Larry. Mm-hmm. But I think the soft landing is, is very hard. And to be to give them just a touch of credit, I think if you read the minutes they put out uh, just uh, in the middle of this past week, those minutes, minutes read to me as though they are fully panicked. They are alarmed. And they now know they are way behind. And that's why I think they're quite, quite disturbed. And I think they're going to be as aggressive as they can be to try to put inflation back in the bottle. But I fear it's too late. And I fear as though they're going to be tightening policy as quickly as they can, so long as the world doesn't implode on them. But they've made it such that financial markets especially are going to be quite sensitive. And if they move uh, faster than markets permit, someone's going to have to blink here. And my guess is uh, Chairman Powell and his colleagues are the ones who blink. You know, in addition to ending QE in J- right away at the next meeting, Kevin, what about a, a 50 basis point hike in the Fed funds rate? I think given where they are, I think they actually need to surprise markets with just that sort of remedy. So I would do it in sequence, Larry. I would first say I'm going cold turkey on these asset purchases. We are not going to try to loosen policy when we're at full employment and we're running at a massive inflation rate. And then because I think they have coddled markets, coddled the economy, emboldened this inflation, I think a surprise of 50 basis points might be just what the doctor ordered. And in some ways, you need to surprise markets and convince them and businesses that you're taking this inflation thing seriously. And I know the new gang at the Federal Reserve says, oh, you never want to surprise markets. But I think they need to jolt expectations back down. And a 50 basis point move might be part of the way you do that. Yeah, you have to have a little shock value here at some point. And I know that institutionally, they'll probably resist that. But it just seems to me you need a wake up call. Because right now, you you need a wake-up call to businesses that are raising prices. You need a wake-up call to the workforce, which is demanding higher wages. In other words, you got to stop it from getting embedded in long-run inflation expectations, don't you? Yeah, you got it. Expectations are what they think is the everything about inflation. And expectations among consumers and businesses are now embedded in the price formation process. Big companies are taking cost increases, and they're raising and improving their margins. That's the story of earnings per share for the biggest companies in the S&P 500. They need to stop that. And so a little shock and awe here is going to be necessary. They need to jolt it. And again, the longer they sit on their hands and act as if this is a normal cycle, there's going to be more of a pain trade at the end of this. You know, Larry Summers, quote, unquote, our friend, um, he kind of got this right. I say he got it right one time in a row. He's, he's now saying that um, dealing with inflation is going to lead to recession. 
Yeah, I mean, it really shows how far the conduct of policy has gone to the aggressive left that Larry actually does seem quite moderate here. And you and I I have said to each other a few times Uh, privately, and now we can uh, say publicly, just because Larry Summers says it it doesn't make it untrue, Larry's got this one right. You Larry's got this one right, and uh, and and you and I are big enough men to agree with him. Yeah, no, absolutely. I give him a lot of credit. Uh, he's, he's Summers and Mansion. They've both done pretty well this year, two Democrats. <laughs> Kevin Warsh, thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. Um, we'll talk soon as this story unfolds. All right. Thanks, pal. Look Happy forward New to year. it. You bet. Happy. This is Greg Kelly. On January 21st, 1980, gold hit a record, the highest in decades, at $835 an ounce. It climbed an astonishing 262% in a single year. What was happening in January of 1980? The Soviet Union had just invaded Afghanistan, inflation reached record highs, and the U.S. was languishing under the weak leadership of President Jimmy Carter. Folks, hindsight is not 2020, it's 1980. We're now facing runaway inflation, new threats from Russia and Iran, and a possible recession and no Ronald Reagan to save us. But there is gold. Monetary Gold is offering up to $5,000 in gold on account for the first 25 callers at 1-888-993-9332. Monetary Gold has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, a top five gold company ranking, and they've been around for two decades. Call them to see if you qualify for gold on account at 1-888-993-9332. Call Monetary Gold right now. All right. Somebody said Scott, the great Scott Rasmussen, uh, one of America's leading upholsters, uh, www.scottrasmussen.com. Scott, what are you you calling your venture now? What is your company called? Well, my polling company is RMG Research, Inc. Uh, But uh, but the data can all be found, as you said, at scottrasmussen.com. All right. So. Talk to me about some of your recent polls. Um, you, you've been polling on um, big government socialism. You've also been polling on January 6th. Uh, tell us what your findings have found. Well, when you talk about big government socialism, as you and I have talked many times, there's this narrative that's being put out that somehow this is an extraordinarily popular bill. And yet, uh, when we actually took a look at the provisions in the bill, very ugly, you know, payments to uh, tens of millions of illegal immigrants, not including the Hyde Amendment protections against federal funding for abortions, and on and on, uh, IRS snooping uh, being encouraged. You know, these things were very unpopular, and I think they're part of the reason the legislation uh, appears for the moment to be dead. And, and by the way, Senator Manchin, you said he's had a good year. Uh, after he said no to the big government socialism bill or the Build Back Better plan, his job approval rating jumped by seven points in West Virginia, and the number who strongly approve of him doubled. So, uh, you know, he was responding to his constituents, and uh, they're pleased with it. When you talk about January – go ahead. No, no. When When you talk about January 5th, once again, we see there's a narrative that's out of sync with where the American people are. Um, people don't like what happened. I mean, there's no other way to say it. I did some polling on January 3rd and 4th just a couple of days ago leading up to this this event, and what we found was that 
Only 13% of Americans have a favorable opinion of those who broke into the Capitol. And uh, while many Democrats, in fact, a plurality of Democrats believe that all Trump voters supported this or most Trump voters supported this, uh, it's simply not the case. Trump supporters, conservatives, Republicans all tend to strongly disapprove of what happened a year ago on January 6th. But that's only part of the story. Uh, You know, 61 percent of people believe that Donald Trump was legitimately elected in 2016. That's basically the same number who believe that uh, Joe Biden was uh, legitimately elected in 2020. Uh, A majority of Democrats still believe that Hillary Clinton was the real winner in 2016. And obviously, a majority of Republicans have the opposite view now. What this tells me, very scary, only one out of four voters believes that the rightful winner was declared president in both 2016 and 2020. Mm. How do you break that cycle, Scott? That's, that is dangerous. It is scary. It's like we have these elections and then, you know, nobody believes them. And that's, right. that can't be a good thing. No, it can't be a good thing, and and I should point out it didn't just begin in 2016. Back in the 90s, when Bill Clinton was in office, about half of all voters said that elections were fair to voters. Uh, Basically, Democrats said they were fair, and Republicans said they weren't. When George W. Bush got elected, Republicans thought the elections were fair, and Democrats didn't. Uh, And then it flipped again when Barack Obama won. So I think what we're seeing is an intensifying of a distrust. One of the reasons for it is we have had nine consecutive close presidential elections. For the Mm. last nine presidential elections, nobody's won more than 53 percent of the vote. You remember the last landslide very well. Ronald Reagan, your boss, was 149 states. Um, And when you have a landslide, nobody thinks that, you know, going to Wisconsin would have made a difference or any Mm. of the other tactical things. Uh, from 19, you know, from the 19 teens up until the 1970s, we had a landslide either every election or every other election. You know, there were somebody connected with the American people in a significant way. Uh, landslides are really good for our political system. They, pure, they purify it from some of the toxic uh, discussions we have now. And they, and they restore a certain legitimacy. And, uh, and by the way, Again, going back to 1984, when Walter Mondale lost, rather than his people thinking, well, we should have won or they cheated or something, what they realized was his message about promising tax hikes was not going to work. Mm. And so they modified their behavior. We need someone who can connect with a broad range of the American people like Ronald Reagan did and like many others did before him. Uh, Sky Rasmussen, have you done any midterm election type polling? Absolutely. Uh, Republicans on the generic ballot polling and my numbers have a two point advantage, and that's among registered voters. Uh, If you talk, take a look at the intensity, uh, Republicans are far more excited about voting in the midterms. And in fact, the most enthusiastic group about voting um, are Trump supporters, people who want policies like uh, like those of the former president. Um, And so. Right now, you know, I think the biggest threat to Republicans is that the election is not being held today. There's a long way to go until November. But if the election were held today, the Republicans would win a significant majority in the uh, House, and they would likely gain control of the U.S. Senate. 
You know, one thing occurs to me, if you go back to 1994, when Bill Clinton and the Democrats lost control of both houses, so he raised taxes in his first couple of years. He tried to have a national health care plan, so-called Hillary Care. Uh, voters rejected that conclusively. Yeah, Newt Gingrich, and you had the first uh, Republican majority in the House in 40-some-odd in years. Now, Bill Clinton changed his policies. Remember, he went up for Congress, mm-hmm. State of the Union, in early 95, and said the era of big government is over. The reason I raise it is... Um, I know we haven't had the elections yet, but Biden's polling has collapsed. The question I have is, does Biden have it in him to, to, to change, to reverse, to pull a Bill Clinton and say, okay, the voters have spoken and we are going to shift our policies from the you know far radical left uh, back towards the center, which is what I think people voted for in the first place uh, in 2020? Well, I agree with you. That's what people voted for in 2020. Um, you know, I don't know what Joe Biden can pull off, but I think your example of Bill Clinton, uh, you have to acknowledge Bill Clinton was one of the most gifted politicians of, mm. of my lifetime. Mm. Uh, there weren't many people that could have pulled that off. Secondly, I think President Biden has a very difficult situation with the progressive left. They're already talking about primarying him. Um, you know, in 2024, if he chooses to run, uh, we see a dynamic where Chuck Schumer seems to be more afraid of AOC than about moving to the center to win over other voters. Uh, so I think it will be very difficult for this president to turn things around. You know, right now, his job approval ratings are in the 41, 42 percent range. Uh, if the world gets a lot better, you know, if the economy gets better and if the, there's no inflation and, and all of those good things, his numbers will rebound somewhat, but I don't think we'll ever see a return to the, the early honeymoon numbers that Joe Biden enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And uh, that will be especially true if Republicans get the Senate. Yeah, no, I suspect you're right. I mean, you you look back at that Clinton period, Clinton and Gore. I mean, people forget in those days, Al Gore was a conservative Democrat. That's uh, right. You know, it was a hawk on foreign policy and um just, you know, those guys had welfare reform. Uh, you're right. The Democratic Party is just so far out there. What's your uh, up-to-date polling now? You know, we've we've saved America and killed the bill for now. There'll be additional votes coming up, so we have to keep our guard up, obviously. Um, is inflation the single most unpopular issue right now? Inflation is the single most important issue right now. Uh, because it's something that people experience every day. And, you know, again, they, people don't think about inflation the way you and Larry Summers and other economists will argue about it. Uh, when people hear about inflation or what, when they experience it, it's because they go to the gas, they go to fill their gas tank and they mm. put 20 bucks more into the gas tank. Half of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. So then they have 20 bucks less to spend on groceries and the price of groceries are going up. That's a very real world issue. And um, one of the things that that people do understand is that more government spending leads to more inflation. Uh, Two thirds of West Virginia voters made that connection 
long before you talked about uh, killing the bill. Mm. And so, uh, you know, these are people have good common sense. Uh, but that is the issue that is the single most harmful to the president right now and the Democrats. And there's something else about it uh, in terms of the way people respond. Um, if the price of gas at the pump went up a dollar tomorrow, uh, consumer confidence would sink right away. And mm. people would go and they'd be in, in sticker shock. If the very next day the price fell back to where it is right now, it would take six months before confidence would recover. Mm. Uh, there's a sort of a sense of people when they've had a bad shock like that, even when the good news comes, they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Mm. So for the Biden administration, if inflation continues beyond the first quarter, they have no time to uh, to to solve that issue politically before the midterms. Where, where does COVID figure in your polling? COVID, you know, it's really fascinating. The, watching how confident people are is like a roller coaster. I began polling on a regular basis. Is the worst behind us or still to come? I did that in the very first weeks of the pandemic. Um, and right now, more people are still believe the worst is to come. 30% mm. say the worst is behind us. 39% say the worst is to come. Uh, the number who are optimistic is half of the total from last May. But something has changed, and what has changed is among those who say they're uh, worried the worst is still to come, half of them are worried about unnecessary government regulations and lockdowns, and only half are concerned about getting COVID. Uh, Three out of four people today say they're close to resuming their normal life, Uh, and a solid plurality believe President Biden and other leaders should spend some time trying to encourage the vaccinated but fearful to re-engage in social activities to, uh, to, you know, to resume a somewhat normal life. So the Biden administration appears to be stuck because many Democrats still think we need to be focused more on stopping COVID at all costs. And the rest of the nation appears to be moving on and saying we, we have to learn to live with this. You know, on that, uh, related to that point, Scott, is um these uh, teachers unions going on strike. Now, Chicago is the biggest example, but there's a lot of cities across the country where this is either happening or threatening to happen. Um, I think people, they at this point, people don't don't want schools to close, or, or what do your numbers show? Well, I think the issue here is probably the second biggest threat to the Biden administration uh, beyond inflation. Uh, The numbers show that a majority of people think that kids losing educational opportunities is a greater threat than the possibility of getting COVID. Uh, Again, there's a partisan difference. Republicans and independents strongly hold that view. Democrats are more divided and lean towards saying, no, getting COVID is still the biggest threat. And again, that puts the president in a bind. His base is moving one way, and mm. the rest of the nation is moving somewhere else. Mm. Tough stuff. All right, Ace Pulser, Scott Rasmussen. We'll check in from time to time, Scott. Great stuff. Thanks for all your help on Kill the Bill. We appreciate it. My suspicion is that one's not done yet. <laughs> More they to be will, revealed. They will try to find a way to slip it into some kind of legislation. I know. I know. Take care. Appreciate it very much. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're going to take a quick break. And on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about global warming, the cost of climate change 
is enormous. And uh, Bjorn Lomborg thinks the public doesn't want to pay that cost. I'm Cutlow. We'll be right back. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now back to the Larry Cudlow Show on 77 WABC. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Cudlow. By the way, I haven't even done a promo for my own show on Fox Business. Every day, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m., title of the show is Cudlow. Please join us. It's lots of fun. Lots of fun. Anyway, I've got Bjorn Lomborg, president of Copenhagen Consensus, uh, author, visiting fellow at the Hoover uh, Institution, and he's a former director of the Danish government's Environmental Assessment Institute in Copenhagen. Uh Bjorn, thanks for coming back on Double Duty. You were on the TV show. Here you are on radio. But I think your your op-ed in the journal a couple days ago, today's soaring energy prices are only the beginning and that current net zero plans are going to cost many, many trillions of dollars while doing little to slow global warming. Now, that you know, that's a lot of... You've packed in a lot of important thoughts there. I don't think people understand the cost side of the climate uh, change issue or the climate solution issue. So tell us. Yeah, that's uh, right. yeah I, mean, I, I mean, I don't think governments, Bjorn, I don't think governments have been honest about this or, or you know, an, analysts have been honest about this. You've got supporters and detractors and so forth. What kind of numbers are you looking at for the, the average person? Well, Larry, it's great to be back. And you're absolutely right. Uh, most government officials and, and certainly uh, uh, most campaigners are almost suggesting to you that you're going to be rich if you go green. Uh, but, of course, uh, the evidence belies that. If you actually were to be rich, we wouldn't need all these grand conferences where everybody tries to twist everyone else's arm to make grand promises far off into the future that they then don't actually live up to. Uh, remember, if you look at British climate policy, for instance, uh, the uh, the British uh, uh, electricity prices, a little bit like the Americans, dropped about sixfold over the 20th century. But because of global warming, they haven't continued declining. They've actually doubled since then because mostly we're trying to replace cheap and effective and reliable, mostly fossil fuel energy with green energy. Now, look, global warming is a real problem, but the way that we're going about it, making this incredibly expensive, right now every year, uh, people in Britain pays about 10 billion pounds more because of these green uh, 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 attempts to uh, reduce carbon emissions. That has real cost. And if you keep piling on those costs, people are eventually going to say, no, I'm not going to pay for that. That is the real problem with the price of uh, uh, climate policy costs. Yes, climate is a real problem, but the policies that we try to achieve with uh, with climate policies also have costs, and they could end up costing many, many trillions of dollars. Yeah, that that's the thing. So, okay, so here's let's try to get to the nub of this. We are living on fossil fuels, and in the main, I think it's fair to say we still are. I mean, I know renewables are, are picking up a bit, but in the U.S. anyway, I think it's still less than 5%. Uh, fossil fuels are still the bulk of it, 75 or 80%. Um, the question here is the transition, Bjorn Lomborg. And, and I think 
you want to solve climate, but wouldn't it be nice if we solved climate issues, carbon emissions issues with a real plan, not just saying, all right, we're going to end it by 2025. We're going to end it by 2035 or whatever the uh, net, uh, uh, net zero plan is or 2050. Do we really at this point have a viable alternative in the works that we know? I mean, it's no, sort of like we're, no. <laughs> you know, not really. What what was it in the old days? Remember when when people were traveling the oceans in the Middle Ages and they didn't have maps and they thought the world was flat and you'd see these things. If you go over a certain line, there be dragons. (laughs) That's what this is like to me. There be dragons. Well, what's out there? Well, uh, what most people don't get, I think, is that right now we have batteries for a couple of minutes, the world has batteries for the electricity consumption for less than two minutes. Huh. Uh, and by the end of this decade, by 2030, we might have batteries enough for 11 minutes. So when huh. the sun stops shining or the wind stops blowing, we have enough for about two minutes. And by the uh, end of this decade, about 11 minutes. Of course, that's not going to do anything. So what we're really doing right now is we're setting up lots and lots of wind uh, mills and, and, and solar panels. We're feeling incredibly good about ourselves, but they're all backed up mostly by fossil fuels. You're absolutely right. Uh, about 79% of the world's energy comes from fossil fuels. And the rest, it's not solar and wind. It's mostly hydro. And then the big thing is that we're burning wood. That's mm. what we've done for millions for thousands of years at least. So the reality is when you're just saying, oh, let's try to get more, what happens is, and you're seeing this in Germany and, and, and California and elsewhere, is that all the sun produces energy at the same time. All the wind produces energy at the same time. So they become almost worthless. And so what you often see is prices drop to zero or even below zero. What you have is a system that you cannot actually replicate up to 100% or not even up to 80%. You can go a little green, but what you're really doing is you're just making it much, much more costly Mm. for ordinary people to keep the lights on. That's why the Bank of America tells us that to get to net zero, and of course you can do anything, as you know, if you're willing to put enough money to it, but what they tell us is we're going to be paying, if we actually want to go to net zero, $150 $150 trillion over the next 30 years. That's mm. pretty much two times the GDP of every nation on the planet of Earth. It's more every year than everyone, all nations, all states, and all households pay for education every year. This is a lot of money. Mm. And I have to ask ourselves, are we really willing to do that? And the answer is no. Most people are not willing to do that. $150 trillion over 30 years, is that's almost an unimaginable number, Bjorn. I mean, honestly, it's almost unimaginable. It, it is. What's crucial is this is not a, an outlier. This is actually academic evidence shows as well uh, by mid-century the global If we do everything right, and mm-hmm. mark with just one carbon price across the globe, It'll cost around $8 trillion a year. Hmm. We look at the U.S., a new study from Nature shows that just to cut 80% of 
which is much, much less than what Biden is promising, 100% by 2050, 80% by uh, 2050, it will cost the U.S. $1 trillion every year, $1,000 per person per year. Remember, the average, sorry, sorry, the majority of the uh, U.S. population will, are not willing to pay $110 a year. Mm. You cannot ask them then to say, all right, let's spend $5,300 per person per year. That's, you know, $20,000 for a family of four. There's no way you can have people pay that. That's why if you want to avoid the yellow vest protest, as you saw in France, mm. you have to find a smarter and cheaper way to fix climate. Yeah, I mean, it would seem to me, uh, and, and look, like you, I am not a climate denier, but I'd rather not destroy our economies in the process of exactly. changing. So wouldn't we, we need some modesty and humility here, plan things out slowly and show people what the options are, the alternatives and the options are over a longer period of time. I would think if you did that, if government people did that, they'd get more support for what they're trying to do. And, and you would, and this is crucial, you would actually have a chance to get a plan that will work. Right now, we're just making up as we go along. I think most climate are, uh, 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 campaigners are basically just saying, let's get as much sun and as much wind in there, and then we'll deal with the problems that we know we'll get when they arrive. Of course, now they're arriving. That's what's happening, for instance, in Europe. We just had about nine months of below average wind, which is why we're now basically at the mercy of Putin and Russia, which mm. is why we have incredibly high uh, energy prices. It's not the only reason, but what it tells us is this is what happens when you do unplanned climate policy. You eventually end up in a place where most voters are going to vote you out. Need mm-hmm. is green baseload power. Notice what happened when the U.S. built fracking. Fracking basically makes gas much, much cheaper, and that made gas much cheaper than coal. This matters for climate because gas emits about half as much CO2 as coal does because gas became cheaper. The U.S. has reduced its carbon emissions more than any other nation in the 2010s. This was not because of Obama or because of President Trump. It was because Gas was cheaper than coal. Hmm. If we could make green energy cheaper than fossil fuels, everyone would switch, not just rich, well-meaning Americans and the rest of the rich world, but crucially, China, India, and Africa, which is going to be the main emitters of the 21st century. If you want a solution, you focus on innovation. If you just want to feel good, sure, you can just waste lots of money and get virtually nowhere. But I'm assuming that most of the people who are worried about climate change actually want it to be fixed and not just be a virtue signal. Hmm. I'll say I'm hung up on we have two minutes of batteries. <laughs> That's not enough. <laughs> it's just not no, enough. No, it isn't. All right, Bjorn Lomborg, and, and, you're and, great. And I think m- most people just don't get that, right, that we have this idea, oh, we have all, the, you know, obviously all these smart people wouldn't just be, you know, uh, running ahead with, that, with no plan. But literally, that is what we're doing right now. And that's why I think you're absolutely right to say we need to have governments tell us how are you going to do that. Imagine if you could innovate the price of, uh, for instance, fusion or fission. Uh, Mm. Fission right now is too expensive. But if we could get 
nuclear power to be cheaper than fossil fuels. It's not right now, but if we could, we would all go to nuclear and we'd be done with it. We'd have baseload power, we'd have very cheap power, and it would have no CO2 impact. There's lots of other ways we can do this, but we need an innovation that'll actually get us through to there rather than just people saying, you're going to pay $5 trillion a, a year, which most people are just going to say no to. Well, we need to pursue this nuclear fusion uh, and fission. That's really important. That'll be the next subject. Anyway, Bjorn Lomborg, Copenhagen Consensus Hoover Institution. Thank you, Bjorn. Happy New Year, buddy. Take care. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to bring in Tyler Goodspeed, uh, talk about the jobs report and why Joe Biden seems to hate supply-siders. I'm Larry Kudlow. Please stick around. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We had a jobs report yesterday. Top line wasn't very good, although underneath that, the household survey was actually quite strong. Unemployment's come down. Wages are going up quite a lot. And then there's what Joe Biden said. Joe Biden attacking supply-siders. Oh, my goodness. So we're going to bring in Tyler Goodspeed, great friend, former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Trump administration, Hoover Institution fellow currently. Uh, first of all, Tyler, Happy New Year, buddy. Happy New Year, Larry. How was your Australian trip? Last time I heard you were in Australia. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's funny. I may not be able to beat Novak Djokovic in uh, in a game of tennis, but at least unlike him, I can get into the into Australia. <laughs> okay. Um, so it really annoyed me. Uh, Biden speaking yesterday after the jobs report, and he says, I'm just going to read you this quote. For too long, Republicans have thrown around terms like pro-growth and supply-side economics to drive an economic agenda that didn't deliver enough growth and supplied more wealth to those who already were very well off. All right, then from day one, my economic agenda has been different, blah, blah, blah. So you wrote a good piece of National Review Online with Kevin Hassett that, in fact, directly contradicts him. Uh, Trump policies, Trump tax cuts and deregulation did throw off growth, and it did help the middle class the most and the lower income uh, ladder the most, and that Biden's facts, as usual, are completely wrong. It's 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 a false statement to say that Trump administration policies increased inequality, delivered gains that disproportionately accrued to the the higher end of the income and wealth distribution. The facts simply contradict that. When you when you look at real wages, when you look at real household income, when you look at real wealth, uh, the, the the gains were biggest at the lower end of the distribution, and that was exactly what we predicted back in 2017. Right. Why does he persist in this? I mean, it's really obnoxious. You know, it's just really obnoxious um, for him to to ignore, disqualify, honest to God, factoids. Right. And and the other point you guys make, look, we all made this, you know, the, the minority groups were huge beneficiaries of these policies. Uh, you had, you know, 50 year lows in unemployment for blacks and Hispanics and Asians and so forth and women. 
And I think, Tyler, it's fair to say in the past, other tax cuts uh, have generated the kind of prosperity that Biden can only dream about. I mean, really, the, the Reagan the Reagan tax cuts. By the way, Joe Biden voted for the Reagan tax cuts in 81 and 86. How about that? Uh, but but it is just, just it's just kind of annoying to me that they continue these these uh, flamboyant political uh, misstatements of facts, Tyler. Right, because you, no, no matter you, you, they throw around these words like trickle down, and they throw around these words like tax cuts for the rich or tax cuts for big corporations. The reality is these these were these were tax cuts. Just don't take my word for it. Look at the JCT scoring of the distributional effects of of the tax cuts in 2019, 2020, 2021. Uh, look at the tax foundation's analysis of the distributional impact of these tax cuts. And then look at the data. I mean, after after the 2017 tax cuts, for the bottom 50% of the wealth distribution, we saw real wealth gains of 28% compared to 9% for the top 1%. I'm all for the, you know, I want the top 1% to, to have some gains as well. But in terms of the relative gains, it was just no contest. I mean, my response to, to this, uh, to Biden's statement yesterday was, yeah, you, you have a, a, an economic agenda that's different. Uh, it's called inflation. I mean, he inherited a non-inflationary economy. Now look at it. We're in deep trouble. That's right. I mean, so all the, the, the numbers that I just, you know, I just put out there, those were real, those are real gains, inflation adjusted. And you can look at wages uh, after the 2017 tax law, real wages for the bottom 10 percent up 8 percent compared to up 5 percent for the, the top 10 percent. Uh, real household income gains uh, for the bottom 10 percent up 7 percent for the top 10 percent up 6 percent. I mean, those are real inflation adjusted gains. And you contrast that to 2021 when real wages actually declined on average. Mm. Mm. He'll never admit it, but those are the facts. Um, Tyler, what'd you make of yesterday's uh, jobs report? So, like you, dis- like, you know, I, I viewed the top line number certainly as, as disappointing. Under the hood, I think it, there was a lot more evidence of a tight labor market. The household surveys showing pretty big gains. I think some of that could just be a bit of catch up because the household survey was actually lagging the business survey through much of 2021. Hmm. But when you look at when you look at nominal wages, when you look at vacancy rates, when you look at quit rates, when you look at the household survey, it has all the signs of a very tight labor market. But what's disappointing for me is that it's a very tight labor market while we're still 3.6 million jobs short of February 2020 and at least 6 million jobs short of where we would be had we continued a pre-pandemic trend. And I think that's because the current administration's policies just aren't incentivizing folks to come back into the labor force. Yeah, it's got to be true. I mean, um, one thing that's so troubling, uh, let's talk about the quit rate for a moment. Um, People are saying the quit rate, which is 3%, is endemic or it, it tells us that people are leaving work but that's not tr- i mean the quit rate isn't a bad thing in some sense it's a good thing isn't it that people are confident enough and that the workforce has sufficient power so they can leave one job and go to another job that pays more i mean that's a good thing isn't it 
In, in the present circumstances, yes. I, I view the high quit rate as, as a sign of labor market tightness, uh, that people, most people quit a job in order to take another job. And I think that those who are employed now uh, have, have a, a fair amount of bargaining power because employers are having such a hard time finding workers. Now, where are these workers? Well, when, by my estimate, we have 1.5 million early retirements. Mm. Now, maybe some of those folks can be enticed to come back in, uh, but I don't think that's going to happen if you're promising higher marginal income tax rates down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, about 1.3 million Americans report still report that they didn't look for work in the past month because of the pandemic. Now, that includes all pandemic-related reasons. Uh, 1.1 million Americans report that an adult in the household didn't look for work in the past month because of child care issues. I would point to continued school disruptions, uh, mm. remote learning as, as a factor there. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, there are, there are a lot of supply-side issues involved, I think. Yeah, I mean, so it's good that we're going to kill the bill. If the bill goes through, it's going to make all these trends worse. Yes, I mean the, the the child tax credit design being being one of the foremost, right? Yeah, you know, with no work work requirements, that's a, that's a big hit to labor force uh, participation. All right, love you, child. Uh, uh, child of good care. speed. Thanks. Happy New Year. Appreciate it. Happy All right, New folks, year. we're going to take a quick break. Other side of the break, we're going to look at the stock market. How about that? Are we worried about the stock market? I don't know. Fed tightening can't be good. We'll be right back. I'm Larry Kudlow. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, Fox Business, join us 4 p.m. Monday through Friday. The show is called Kudlow. It's doing very well, but we always need a little more help. And let's do some stock market work. We've got two stars, New Year's stars, Michelle Gerard, Managing Director, Co-Head Global Economics at NatWest Markets, and Jim LeCamp, Senior Vice President of Investments at Morgan Stanley. So welcome. Happy New Year, kids, to both Happy of you. Happy New Year. Let's see what's doing here. So stocks, I don't know, the Dow was off 107 points. S&P was down 89 NASDAQ was down 709. That seems like a big number. I don't know. <laughs> um, but basically, we're at very high levels, very high levels, despite the fact, Michelle, that the inflation rate is also at a high level. And the Fed is turning. The ship is turning, however slowly, and they'll never do it fast enough, but the ship is turning the QE is coming to an end. Rate hikes are out there. And I want to add um, former Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, who's a very dear friend of mine. He was on this show, um, I don't know, Tuesday or Wednesday, and he predicted a uh, 3% 10-year Treasury, I think he said in 18 months. Mm-hmm. So let's see, the Treasury, what did that close? 177. 177, yeah, right. on Friday. So, all right, so that thing's moved up. For the week, it was up 26 basis points. So that's like a big move. That's a very big move. So, all right, Michelle, what do you make of the story? Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen this week in particular is 
um, investors being able to, or you know, managers being able to position for this shift in pretty stark shift in in Fed posture. Um, it, it, you know, we knew it in December with the you know at the FOMC meeting in December. The change in the dot plot, the the talk about you know bringing the purchases to an end sooner, it, it, you know that that was kind of the most hawkish shift that we've seen under Paul. I mean, and someone had said even with the FOMC dot plot, going back to the introduction of the dot plot in in 2012, the shift from people thinking, oh, will we even start in 22 to you know we're going to do three three hikes in 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 the year. So. I think with year end, you had people not really in a position to start to, to position and bet on that. And now, uh, in combination with the FOMC minutes on Wednesday, which even provided more of an exclamation point to the shift in the Fed, because now they're even talking about balance sheet rundown. Mm. Um, and you had some strong numbers on Friday. I know the headline payroll number was not as strong, but the wage numbers surprised again to the upside. I just, you know, the market is now continuing to bet the Fed is going to go quicker and perhaps more aggressively. And and at the start of the year, you have people now able to put money to work to position for that. How about 50 basis point rate hike immediately? Yeah, Yeah. you know, I think the Fed, you know, this, you know, the Fed, they will move slowly and cautiously, especially at the start. Um, I think you do raise a good point, though. We've, we've, we are, you know, ourselves included, have, you know, three basis, um, three rate increases projected for 22, 25 basis points. You know, each time they go, I, we've got a pretty aggressive inflation number. I mean, yes, they'll come. The numbers will come down over the course of the year, helped by the year-over-year base effect numbers. But we're still going to be elevated. We still have. Well, first of all, in the first part of the year, we still have inflation going higher. And when mm-hmm. it does come down, it only comes down to around three percent. We've got the economy growing at better than three percent over the course of the year. I don't know. I think the risk is that you do start hearing people talk about maybe the Fed does go faster. Maybe they do go by 50 basis points. Um, you know, this is a very slow pace of, uh, of you know, normalization, if you will. And I just wonder if that will ultimately be challenged. Of course, if that happens in the equity market struggles, you know, that's always a, an offsetting factor the Fed takes into account. I just, before I get to Jim McCamp, I, why is the inflation rate going to come down? I mean, I know this this year over year stuff, yes. but, but blah blah blah. Michelle, the Fed is still pumping money in. Yeah, I know they're saying one thing, but they're still purchasing bonds and increasing bank reserves, and the money supply is still growing rapidly. I don't get that. No, you're you're 100 percent right, Larry. It's it's really purely optics. It's just no. those year over year comparisons. We have, for example, the the um, PCE, you know, core deflator that the Fed watches on a month over month basis. It's it's going to average between two tenths and three tenths of a percent increases. Whereas before, you were like, you know, before the the pandemic, it, we were, you know. 0.1 or 0.2 a month. So we mm. do continue to see firm readings. The optics may help the Fed move slowly. But we all, you know, those of us who are looking at it will continue to say there is price pressures. And that's why when we get through that optics part where the year-over-year comparisons don't help out, you're going to see an inflation rate, in my mind, that is steady, you know, probably close to 3%. It won't, you know, once you get past that, that, that benefit of those year-over-year comparisons, you're going to end up at a place that I think is uncomfortably high for this Fed. Yeah, like 5%. I don't know. Jim I don't know camp. if it'll be 5 but but it's... it's I, um, I, 
Yeah. You know, I'm in I'm in the business of stirring the pot, creating news. <laughs> you, you're in the business of serious analysis. <laughs> but Jim LeCamp, think of it this way. The Fed funds rate, which is at z- we'll call it zero, uh, the CPI is at seven. So that gives you a real Fed funds rate of minus 7%. Mm-hmm. And the unemployment rate is 3.9, which is pretty close to full employment. I don't want to get into uh, various ideological debates, but I'm just saying 3.9% is a very low unemployment rate, and it signals, in general, a pretty darn good labor situation. Uh, There's a lot of working. Workers have power. They're switching jobs. The quit rate is high. The economy is growing. Uh, You're probably going to get 6 or 7% in the fourth quarter blah, 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 and you've got a negative uh, funds rate of about 7%. It doesn't make any sense is what I'm saying, and the Fed is still pumping in money. You know, I read Ed Hyman's stuff, and, you know, M2, which has grown at 40% over the last two years, it's still growing at 12 or 13% year on year, and they're still buying bonds uh, issued by our profligate government. So I don't know. It's just not a great story. Well, I, I, you look, the, the Federal Reserve Board has never been confused with being Nostradamus. I mean, if you look back to the fourth quarter of 2018, they were talking about rate hikes uh, to infinity beyond and the balance sheet reduction uh, going on in an unforeseen time frame. And by March of 19, they cut rates. And they never raise rates, they cut rates. So uh, when we look at, I, I disagree with some of the consensus numbers, because as people go uh, back to work, I think some of the supply chain eases. As savings rates have come down, some of the consumer spending metrics will abate and not be as red hot as they have been. And uh, we've seen some manufacturing areas finally come uh, back to life a little bit, which, again, should help uh, with supply chain issues and uh, some uh, um, PPI-type figures in terms of being able to deliver products and and companies getting parts and able to sell things for what they normally would sell them for. Uh, Consumers are also showing some sensitivity to uh, higher gasoline prices. So sometimes uh, you, you start factoring in all these inflation numbers, but as inflation hits, people change their behaviors and inflation moderates. I don't think that the Fed is going to be too overly aggressive because the Fed has shown an extraordinary sensitivity to the markets. And if we get a tantrum, they're going to cool it, mm-hmm. especially in an election year. And so I I think it's possible what the market is saying hey i don't like a 10-year treasury that goes from uh, call it a buck 51 to a buck 76 in that short of a time frame knowing that there are still concerns that this economy could slow down is the fed going to be over aggressive into an economy that's already showing some signs of moderation and i think that's what's hitting the stock market so um i i think we have to be very very careful 
about going too far out with these Fed projections because they've very simply not, not been right about anything, especially inflation. And I, I'm a little concerned that while they thought inflation was going to be too transitory and, and not an issue, now they're concerned. I'm, I'm concerned that they are convinced it's going to be too persistent. Nah, it's going to be persistent. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I guess the question is, I mean, Jim, I agree with you. It's just all about the timing. Um, you know, some these pressures will ultimately abate. But, I mean, I was just reading something, I think it was from Cox Automotive, that was saying, for example, used car supply, they don't expect to get back to 2019 levels until 2024. Um, I, I just, I'm afraid that these... You know, you talk about people going back to work, and that'll help ease the labor shortage. I just don't know how quickly that's going to unfold, and I guess that's where. Um, yeah, and I think we've, we've, you know, this the fact that we haven't seen with Omicron, for example, the restrictions being put on. We're starting to learn to live a bit with COVID. I, I don't know. I'm not. I just. I think the. I, I guess I see upside risk on. Um, on both the price pressures and, and demand kind of, um, you know, persisting longer than the scenario that you describe sort of unfolds. So it's a time, I mean, I, ultimately you're, you're exactly right. This will, will cool. I just don't know if it'll, you know, how quickly in 2022 that's going to show itself. Yeah, and, and, and to your point, I, you know, I, I, I get your point. But uh, to your point, I mean, we have seen in the past, in the past 10 years, Many times when we saw these spikes that we had in energy prices immediately have an impact on the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they, they, we've already shown uh, uh, consumers are already showing some price sensitivity to single family homes. And they, they're, there's been no inventory. So prices are, are crazy high. And now buyers are starting to say, "Man, I don't know if I want to pay this price anymore, especially now. Uh, and we could see that uh, happen more if mortgage rates start to come up. So some of these things will have a, tampony, uh, a, a, a ta- tapering effect on the economy. And I'd like to point out also, there's no money velocity. There might be money supply, as Larry pointed out. But money velocity is very, very low, and government spending, once you get past this um, debt-to-GDP level that we are, we're way past, government spending has a negative multiplier, I, I just don't see this economy over-accelerating to the point where the Fed is going to raise hikes in maybe any more than maybe three times. You, you better hope that we kill the bill. Yeah, I do you, hope we kill the You better the bill. hope we kill the bill. Um, that's important. By the way, there are no cars. There are no cars. Okay. I'm in the oh, I know. I'm I have, and there's no cars. <laughs> there's no cars. I mean, I, I have a Lincoln Navigator. It's a good car. Um, and uh, the deal ran out. So I, I'm talking to this guy, and I'm, I, I'm paying $1,300 a month. I don't want to pay $1,300. I don't even use it. It sits here in Connecticut. The car is over. The car is, I think, three and a half years old. I have four thousand miles on it. That's how little I use this stupid car. I'm paying thirteen hundred dollars for a car that I don't use. So I talked to this guy. He's very good, and he now wants me to buy an aviator, Lincoln Aviator. So it's sort of a downsized Navigator, and he wants me to pay more money for it. He said, "Well, all right, I can I can get you this for that, and you can pay fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars a month." I said, "I don't want to pay fifteen hundred dollars a month. I want to pay half that." 
because I don't use the car. And he's going through with me. There are no cars on the lots, and dealers are selling to each other. They're not even bothering with consumers. It's all wholesale. There are no what chips. What you're describing is that you have price sensitivity. <laughs> and what I'm saying is that people <laughs> will have price sensitivity. Yeah, but there's no. I'm describing supply sensitivity. There are no it's cars. Both. It's both. But <laughs> it's the same thing with houses. Um, and people can drive cars for a long time. They don't have to go out right. and buy a new car. My car's worth more, amazingly, worth more than I bought. Uh, I paid for it four years ago because of what you just described. Well, by the way, the, right, there is equity in the car. One. It's the well, first time in history. There's equity mm-hmm. in the car. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. I do think what Jim said, though, coming back to the market, when Jim, when you said, and you're 100% right, the extraordinary sensitivity that the Fed has shown to to the market, you know, we, it always comes back to that. If the market starts, if people start to expect a more aggressive Fed and the market throws a tantrum, as perhaps, you know, we've seen some evidence of that, or, you know, again, maybe they're worried about, again, a policy mistake. It will temper the Fed, right or wrong. It will temper yeah, the Fed. Yeah, that's so wussy. Yeah, but that is so wussy. But the Fed, one of the things they try to do with policy is drive up asset prices, and mm. if asset prices are coming back down because of a change in policy, they're going to be noticing it, and it's right. going to hit. Anything yeah. with leverage attached to it. If rates go up too much, it's not only going to hit the stock market, it's going to hit the real estate market because of so much leverage attached to all these assets. Yeah, well, when you you know, when you know make your bed, you have to sleep in it. Right. So the, the Fed has had a bad year. The Fed has run an emergency monetary policy enabling government spending, pumping in money, purchasing all these bonds, and they shouldn't have. The whole right. year, Michelle, the Fed right. has been wrong. Let's but face they, it. They have. But now here, the worst nightmare scenario for the Fed is that they, if they do back off because they see asset values coming off or the equity market coming off, but inflation, because of their actions, remains unexpectedly or surprisingly high so that the bond market can, you know, yields continue to rise because they, you know, as the Fed take, you know, backs off, the the bond market, you know, is saying, well, then you're not going to control inflation like you need to. Like that's their worst kind of scenario because, you know, that they back off, but you end up seeing, you know, uh, long higher ten year rates, and that continues to undermine the equity market and continues to hurt the economy. Even if the Fed is, you know, it, it's it's very tricky then for the Fed yeah. if the inflation. I mean, inflation is going to really be the key. They're fine backing off if your scenario, Jim, plays out, but God forbid it doesn't because of the seeds they've sown over the last year or two. It's going to be very problematic. Which is what's going to happen? I mean, what do you think of Mnuchin's three percent ten year forecast? Yeah, it's very close to what we – I don't know if we I, – I would say we're probably a little bit further out. I don't think we've got it quite that high by the end of 22. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, we've got we've got a fork. I think we're at like two and a half by the, by the end of the year. So, um, you know, we're, we're all in the same, same camp yeah. in terms of rates going higher. So, Jim, the thing, profits the are the mother's is, milk of stocks. Profits are correct. the mother's milk of stocks. What is the outlook for profits? Uh, I think this is why you're seeing a very 
Charles Dickens stock market here. Uh, for certain areas, it really still is the best of times. And for other areas, it's turning into the worst of times. Look at the Russell and look at the NASDAQ. Uh, the NASDAQ's on the verge of breaking below the 200-day moving average. The Russell's breaking down. Uh, so these companies are selling off because of what you just said. They are concerned that they don't have uh, the, price, the pricing power to keep up with the current inflation rates. So if you look at the high-growth, high-margin companies that have more pricing power, they're doing better. Uh, the financials are doing very, very well, of course. And energy continues, uh, mostly because of policy. Uh, energy uh, stocks continue to be very strong. Everything else... I think you have to look at with a very jaundiced eye hmm. until we can have a better grip on both rates and inflation. I mean, even in this show, the three of us have possibly differing views on how persistent or or, or, or how high these things are going to go. And I, I think the market is, is struggling with the same thing. And so I, I think profits are going to be fine, but they're very bifurcated. And you're going to want to be in the high-growth, high-margin businesses. And, and, and in terms of tech, a lot of people are asking me, well, are they getting cheap now? And maybe they are from a trading perspective. Maybe you can. And by the way, the middle 10 days of January are usually pretty rocky for the markets. Um, but you might be able to start looking at some of these things from a trading perspective. But if the rise in 10-year rates – continues to be persistent, it's going to hit uh, more of these tech stocks and more of these small cap stocks, and you're going to want to be very careful about what you own. Michelle, wages are rising sharply. The, the jobs report yesterday, as you know, average hourly earnings up six tenths, 6.2% annually for the past three months. And actually, Michelle, if you add in hours worked, you're at 9%. Yeah. Now, uh, isn't that bad for profits? I, I, I mean, I'm glad the workforce is making a buck. Uh, I hope they make a buck above inflation. But I don't think the productivity is going to cover these wage hikes, which means unit labor costs go up, which means right. profits right. profits less strong. Yeah, well, that's my that's the concern. And, and, you know, kind of Jim alluded to it, I guess, that, you know, the, the question is to what extent um, – is there an offset in productivity, which is which has been high? So at least that's a bit of a help. But you know, and and to what extent can they pass the, you know, can they pass the costs on through to the, you know to consumers in order to and, and keep margins and and um, you know as Jim sort of said, there's they're having trouble being able to potentially pass along enough to to offset the higher costs that they're facing. And I, you know, we talked about it. I I do think some of the labor issues you know this lack of workers some some are temporary some will will abate more quickly than others but i i do think that the labor shortage is going to be more persistent over the course of the year some of the issues that we've had in terms of low immigration um in terms of well the early retirement story of course low population growth you know, all of these things were sort of in train even before the pandemic. They've made worse, been made worse by by the pandemic, and I just think it's going to be a real it's going to be a real headwind for, um, you know, for the labor market kind of getting back to to more balance with respect to supply and demand. Does Omicron is Omicron going to drag down first quarter GDP? 
It, it is, I think, um, we've got, you know, growth around six and a half, you had said six to seven percent in Q4. Um, we're only around two and a half percent in the first quarter, but mm. coming back pretty quickly. It's it's almost statistically the case because you'll end, you know, the fourth quarter on a weaker note, you'll start because the real hit from Omicron is probably a January story in terms of the data. So, you know, statistically, that kind of hurts the numbers, but I think we'll have kind of good momentum coming out of the first quarter and actually ourselves and others have been raising second quarter estimates kind of on this expectation that while Omicron has the case numbers have been high obviously hospitalizations and deaths remain very low mm-hmm. to the good and and as a result you've seen no real you know in the US and the UK I mean globally you're not seeing the kind of restrictions that have needed to you know be put in place again so we kind of expect a pretty quick pick back up as the case numbers peak, um, you know, I think activity picks back up. So I think it's a real temporary setback. As I said, for the, you know, for the full year, we're looking at growth over 3%. I want to fire these striking school teachers. Yeah. I just want to fire them. Reagan, it's a Reagan moment. Fire them like Patco. They don't want to teach. You're out. Gone. And I want, and Marsha Blackburn, Senator Blackburn said on the air last night in the show, take all their money away. They put all this COVID money into education and the teachers don't want to teach. And at least they haven't. I think it also, I mean, when you look at all these flight cancellations and other effects that this has had, it's certainly going to have an impact uh, on the economy. I I agree with Michelle. It's it's certainly not as dangerous uh, as Delta was, but the fear-mongering out there and the bullying of people who want to engage in economic activity still remains pretty high. Mm-hmm. The other thing, though, that really bothers me, and I mentioned this before, is the personal savings rate numbers have gone way, way down. And mm-hmm. real consumer spendings, uh, spending uh, only emanates, uh, emanates really from uh, savings. So if, if we continue to see these savings numbers drop, uh, I think it will uh, eventually work its way into the economic data. What's oil going to do, Jim? I'm still very bullish on oil. Um, they, the uh, administration's moves uh, to the fossil fuel industry make no sense whatsoever. Uh, we still don't have enough infrastructure uh, and or cars, for that matter, to really have this explosion in uh, electric car usage versus fossil fuel uh, use uh, car usage uh, and yeah we saw uh, the consumers back off a little bit on gasoline usage but I mean look uh, globally there are serious problems and global inventories on fossil fuels are very very low as we approach the the heart of winter here um, and the, the end of these oil runs typically occur because of what futures traders do and that usually means that they spike at the end of an uptrend and they implode at the end of a downtrend like they did in May of 2020. But if we go back to 2014 and we saw it, uh, that in, that run end with a spike higher, bringing it close to 140 bucks, I think that's how this trend ends. And I don't think we're anywhere near that. So I think prices are going higher. This guy wants me to buy a smaller car and pay more money for it. I'm still trying to deal with that, get my head around that. Really, it's not the uh, Michelle, uh, what's the dollar going to do? 
Well, I mean, you know, we're talking about the we, we think the dollar will be stronger. Um, it, uh, you know, the shift in the Fed, uh, the, the sort of leading, um, it, you know, uh, kind of globally, the, obviously the Bank of England is, um, has, has raised rates. But, but we think the dollar, this is going to be a year where the dollar will, um, you know, will strengthen and, and come, you know, certainly on a relative basis and, and versus the euro where inflation is, and and therefore the ECB is going to be you know not not taking any action. Inflation is is staying lower um, in Japan similarly. So the the dollar should um, you know we've got a forecast for the dollar to strengthen, uh, particularly against those currencies. Why did the five year tips break evens fall nine basis points yesterday? So it closed at two eighty two. It had, it was rising a lot, and then all of a sudden yesterday it dropped. I didn't. Couldn't really the ten-year note was up twenty-six basis points for the week, and the tips, five-year tips are down nine basis points for the week. I don't get that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if Jim, if you have any thoughts about, do you have any insights on that? I mean, I I don't know. No, if I, I saw them started to move after uh, the payroll numbers missed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I think that had a lot to do with it, but mm. um, I didn't see any other single piece of news that would have uh, driven that move. I didn't notice it, and I thought it was unusual, but it did start happening right after the uh, payroll numbers. And I just don't know if that's a sign, that, you know, again, as the curve kind of continues to flatten and the market is banking more on the, you know, on the Fed being more aggressive, that, you know, there's, you're starting to see some potential that the you know that inflation doesn't get out of check. You know that the that uh, that that action keeps um, you know helps to bring in inflation lower, remove some of that risk. Yeah, you gotta wait. Again, I do think there are some out there that fear that the Fed uh, mm-hmm. comes in too hot, too late, mm-hmm. and attacks an economy that's already. Uh, starting to ameliorate, ameliorate its growth rate. You got to get ready when Biden nominates these. What do you got? Three seats that are open, four seats that are open for the Fed. You're going to get these mon- modern monetary theorist yep. woke crowd coming into the Fed. Yeah, but and, I tell you though, they're it's coming. Good. Even some of the more dovish guys historically on the Fed have started to sing a more hawkish tune. I mean, we got to at least take. Take some solace in that. I mean, That's I do feel pre-woke. that people. Yeah, I was pre woke. We're, we're in the woke period, Michelle. MMT is hot in the Biden White House. Woke MMT. They're worried about climate well change. The they're worried about well diversity. I, yeah. I don't know why we don't just keep going down this path because it's it's done so well for so many countries. Well, that's oh. what they, it be, I know. Well, you, you got to understand Venezuela is the model here. I mean, yeah. Biden said it yesterday. He said we have a new economic plan, and I said, yeah, it's called inflation. <laughs> 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 he doesn't like supply siders, so he's got a new plan. It's called seven percent inflation in his first year of the, office. Uh, to the Weimar Republic right now. You, yeah. you have a, an educated populace that has been, sort of somehow been browbeaten into believing something that's clearly, A, not true, and B, has never worked ever in the history of the planet. In fact, has backfired every time. And by the way, did you know that uh, all the countries that have tried to escape a zero interest rate policy, every single one of them went back to a zero rate policy? <laughs> yeah. 
To understand the future of monetary policy, we're all going to have to go back and read the FOMC minutes for Venezuela. That's what's going to happen here. <laughs> Jim McCann, Michelle Gerard, Happy New Year. You're both wonderful kids. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to do some money in politics on the other side with Liz Peake uh, and Steve Moore. I'm Larry Kudlow. Please stay right here. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. All right, folks, welcome back. Let's do some money in politics. We got our our gang is back. Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, Hill author, Liz, what you you do? You write columns for for Fox Business too, don't you, or something? Uh, sometimes I write on the Fox website every Monday. Comes yeah. up at five a.m. on Monday, and then the Hill uh, later in the week. Okay. And Steve Moore, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, Freedom Works, and Save America, Kill uh-huh. the Bill. <laughs> um, interestingly, where did I just see this? Speaking of mansion and kill the bill, now hang on one second, because I think I just saw that the... Oh, wait, here it is. Hold on, hold on. Um, Mansion's $1.8 trillion spending offer is reportedly no longer on the table. Hey! hey. Now, now the, this, the source of this story is somewhat suspect. It's CNBC. <laughs> I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. But they are reporting this. Um, let's see. Joe Manchin's $1.8 trillion appears to be no longer on the table. Told reporters last week he's no longer involved in discussions. Right, we knew that. His office is not responding. Uh, Manchin has spoken with a raft of officials and others seeking gain, seeking to garner his support, including senior, look at this, senior White House aide Steve Ricchetti, Larry Kudlow, former economic advisor, and Republican Senator Mitt Ra- Oh, this is a silly. Oh, this is a Washington Post story. That's yeah, the reason. Oh, okay, okay. So talk about sources. Holy cow. But um, anything, I, I want to talk about a bunch of things. But, Steve Moore, the thing looks really dead right now. I mean, I think that's a, that's a, that's a, the case. Isn't it? I mean, this is, we have one, I know, and they're going to come back. And, you know, you could never put a spike through it, but it looks pretty dead. Isn't that right? Well, you know, this is the difference between you and me, Larry. You always see the uh, glass half full. And I, see it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I uh, Look, I, I think this is a vampire bill. I think you've got to stick a stake through the heart of it. You have to mm-hmm. bury it. You have to pull, pour salt on the soil so it never goes back. I will say this. Uh, that, as you know, Larry, uh, our Save America Coalition has been doing um, almost weekly polling in West Virginia. And uh, what we found was that prior to Senator Manchin, uh, you know, uh, killing the bill back uh, about three weeks ago, he had a 52 percent approval rating. And when he announced that he was uh, against the bill, and would not vote for it, his approval rating went up to almost 60 <laughs> percent. So, uh, yeah. and by the way, Biden's approval rating in, in uh, his disapproval rating in West Virginia is 62 percent. So this is just from a matter of pure politics. 
it makes no sense for Senator Manchin to make any kind of deal with Biden. Biden has zero political capital in West Virginia. His bill, Build Back Better, is incredibly unpopular there. I would make the case that no state in the country is a bigger loser from his energy policies than West Virginia. So there's no rational reason why Joe Manchin would want to cut a deal, in my opinion. And, Liz, I think this break the filibuster thing is dead also. Well, and, and, of course, Manchin is standing in the way of that, as is Kristen Cinema. But yep. for the same kinds of political reasons, I think. I mean, uh, what does breaking the filibuster mean? It means Democrats can push forward some of these bills that are not popular, and in particular not popular in West Virginia or Arizona. So uh, it seems to me, yes, I think that is really a risky thing. I don't know what Chuck Schumer is doing trying to force a vote on the filibuster, force a vote on uh, also on the voting rights bill when he doesn't have the votes. It seems like a really desperate move to me and something that could really boomerang in terms of hurting uh, senators from uh, moderate districts, which which, you know, which are not on board with uh, the kind of uh, proposals that the Democrats have been putting out there. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why that's why I, you know, I think Larry and I have been saying, and you too, let's let's have these votes. Come yeah. on, <laughs> bring them yeah. up. Let's see how the senators vote on filibuster. Let's see how they vote on Build Back Better. Let's see how they vote on this outrageous, uh, you know, so-called Voting Rights Act. Uh, the um, these things are incredibly unpopular with the American people when when they understand what they're about. And incidentally, Joe Manchin has said something very wise. Uh, even when Republicans tried to get rid of the filibuster, by the way, Larry, I was always against this. I mean, this mm-hmm. is, the filibuster is really so critical to the idea of of uh, the rights of the minority. We we are yeah. not majority rule in America, and it's a, it's an incredibly important tool to protect. And guess what? The Democrats aren't going to always have the majority in the Senate, right. as Manson said. So it, this would work very much against them when they lose the Senate. So Pelosi's uh, saying he's going to give his State of the Union March 4th, which is very late. Uh, it's usually in the last week of January. But I, I'm just thinking, get your views, uh, by March 4th, they will have lost the filibuster argument. They have lost the nationalizing election argument. They have lost the Build Back Better argument. His agenda will be collapsed, and his presidency continues to go downhill. And he's not going to change. He's going to get up there and sell stuff that the Senate and the rest of the country don't want, Liz. I mean, yeah. that's, I mean he's setting himself up for even worse uh, political ramifications. His polls will go even lower. He will be lucky to have polling that's higher than the temperature outside. <laughs> and that's saying something today. Uh, you know, I think the calculus must be on setting the date so late that things are just horrible right now, uh, and yeah. they have to get better. And I and I'm assuming she's in particular thinking that they can indeed meet in person and have this. Uh, seance, you know, in March because the Omicron uh, surge will have gone by. You know, I think it's a leap and a prayer, and who knows really what kind of State of the Union address he's going to give. But right now, my gosh, you know, aside from other things, I think people are finally beginning to say, where did the money go? I mean, where is that $5.4 trillion that Congress has approved? 
when the when the White House is going to Congress, according to the Washington Post, or mm-hmm. about to, and ask for more money mm-hmm. for testing and therapeutics. I mean, yes. this honestly, when I heard this yesterday, my head exploded. I was like, <laughs> yeah. "You cannot be serious." And and when you start digging into the numbers, where are the areas where they have underspent even what was allocated? Healthcare is number one. They haven't spent so, the money. Why haven't they spent great, the money? Because they're unbelievably inept. <laughs> and I think people so are beginning to cotton on to that. You're making a great point. And the, the, I guess it's the irony of this. You never know when to laugh or, or cry. But when they remember when they passed their $1.1 trillion so-called sham infrastructure bill, one of the ways they, quote, paid for it was to take un, yeah. unspent money from the you know COVID relief bill because we're not going to need this. Now they, <laughs> they've spent that money, so now they have to come back for more, more COVID relief money. And there's one other really important point tied to what you're saying, which is, we spent a hundred and thirty billion, not a hundred and thirty million, a hundred and thirty billion dollars, Larry, on the schools. Yes. Now the schools are all shut down again in, in in Philadelphia, in Chicago, in Newark, in San Francisco. What the hell is going on here? Reagan moment. Reagan you know, moment. Steve, if you read, uh, I'm sure you did, a lot of what was in the um, rescue plan, a lot of that money went out with absolutely no strings attached. It was right. not. Uh, even it was not even purported to facilitate opening schools. It was basically just a payoff to the teachers unions. And I mean, that sounds pretty harsh, but that's when you when you allocate. In fact, the total amount allocated over the last two and a half years to education, two hundred eighty three billion dollars. Again, where has the money gone? But I want to point out one other thing. The, of that total 5.4 trillion, and there, by the way, <laughs> who knew there is a watchdog group that has was set up yeah. with the first big CARES Act, and that it does have numbers on where all the money was supposed to be allocated. Of the 5.4 trillion, only 351 was for health care. I mean, doesn't anyone else think that's pretty bizarre when, when than- this whole effort had to do with a pandemic? Less than 10 percent. Yeah, I less had, than 10 percent. I had Kathy McMorris Rogers. And uh, Jason Smith on, uh, yeah. they're they're crusading for this. They were on the show last night, and they make that point. Uh, what nine cents out of every dollar? That's all that was spent on COVID, and yeah. they don't know where the money is. And the idea that they're going to come back for more COVID money oh, is yeah. utterly insanity, utterly insane. But I just don't want to let this go on the teachers, Steve. You're right. I've been saying it. It's time for a Reagan moment. Fire the striking teachers. Fire them. Absolutely. And I had, uh, let's see, Marsha Blackburn was on, and she said, yeah, and she said, take their money back. She wants to take their money back, which I think is terrific. This is, and for people who, you know, who are of a younger age who may not know what Larry and I are referring to is when Reagan uh, I think it was in his first months in office, wasn't yep. it, Ray? Uh, Early 81. Early 81. Yeah. He he fired these uh, illegally striking air traffic control controllers who thought they could, you know, shut down the entire, the entire um, airline industry and all air travel in America. And Reagan very courageously and smartly against, I mean, everyone was shocked when he did it. He said, okay, you guys aren't going to show, show up to work. It's an illegal strike. We're going to fire you. And he kept the... There were they kept the whole system running, didn't mm-hmm. they, Larry? Yes, yeah. they kept yeah, the yes. How running. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't want to go on an airplane back then. <laughs> well, they had, yeah. the, the, not all the workers went on strike, and they worked yeah. overtime. And they, but anyway, the point is, 
that it was quite popular with the American people. Yep. And here's the interesting thing. What I think that these governors should do and, and mayors is, is call this a, you know, an emergency, a, a health and safety emergency, and they should void the union contracts. Yes. Oh, love that. What a good idea. And void those contracts and say, you know what, this is you are out of control. This is this is an endangerment to our kids and find replacements to come mm-hmm. in and teach. I'm from Chicago, as you guys know, and everybody I knew. No, even my liberal friends are, are, are angry about this. Mm-hmm. And the mayor, the mayor said that the quote, the teachers unions in Chicago are holding our kids Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she's a Democrat. The problem with what you propose, Steve, is that the Democrats are terrified of the teachers unions. It's not just the money that they contribute every election cycle, which has gone up steadily over the last two decades. So it's tens of millions of dollars now in every election cycle. It's also the people. Who do you think is harvesting ballots? Who do you think goes Mm -hmm. and knocks on doors? This is not... And uh, a figment of my imagination. This is what the teachers' unions are useful for. So, uh, you know, Lori Lightfoot, to her credit, is taking them on in Chicago. Uh, I think it's a horrible thing that the teachers are doing there. I, I there is some uh, part of me that rather small part of me that really kind of enjoys watching them go at each other. Uh, it's sort of the same part that enjoyed seeing that the DNC staff has unionized. Did you guys see that? <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I love and, and that. I say hurrah. Uh, hurrah. Joe Biden is pushing unions as hard as he can. Let's just <laughs> the DNC deal with that. But this but, is a serious thing. And it, by the way, Steve, it is a health emergency. Kids is. are suffering. Lightfoot yeah. called it an illegal action. That's why she should fire them and, yep. you're, and she should end their contract. She won't because she's a wuss, but she should. It would okay. be a terrific thing. By the way, have you been following this story? Nancy Pelosi, I have to have a whole... I think Nancy Pelosi is against Build Back Better. The reason I think that is we took a look at her stock market portfolio, okay? She is <laughs> she is opposed to ending stock trading, okay? And now I know why. Take a look at what she owns. Liz, she owns all these tech stocks. She's made a fortune on tech stocks. Well, why would she want to raise the capital gains tax, for example? Right. (laughs) I mean, have you looked at – it's a fascinating story. And she has – I couldn't figure out why she was so soft on this uh, ethics of stock trading. Because it personally hurts her. She's made, what is it, $30 million recently mm-hmm. trading tech stocks. But, you know, Larry, this, this does kind of get my goat because if you're, in the, if you're a banker these days, you are not allowed to trade any individual stocks. Basically, almost, and, and think about this in the context that these people, they're supposed to really understand and know markets and supposed to be personally involved in them to, that, to some degree. Okay, so there are really draconian laws about what bankers can and cannot do. Why shouldn't Congress be subject to the same kinds of laws? They are making and passing bills all the time that really impact the future of uh, industries. And by the way, they know ahead of time that's going to happen. And there have been instances of people trading ahead of something quite significant happening in the way of an FDA drug approval or whatever. I think they should be held to the same standard. Well, I'm very impressed with their portfolio. I'm very impressed with their trading acumen. And I now understand why, for example, she doesn't want to tax on unrealized capital gains. I wouldn't either. Gee, Willie. Um, one other point, uh, Liz, good, good, good column here. 
voters are fed up with Democrats' obsession with race. Okay, and, you know, I had Steve Miller is crusading in New York. Steve Moore, do you know this governor of New York, Hochul, um, COVID uh, therapies, you know, and related things. I don't know if it includes tests, but um, monoclonal therapies and so forth uh, are being allocated in New York on the basis of race. Have you seen this story? Which I, Liz, I don't know if you talked about it. I didn't read the yeah, column. I, I just saw the I title. I mean, that is a yeah. horrible, horrible thing. It's also probably against the law, but um, well, imagine way, that. White people from, cannot get monoclonal uh, remedies. I have a friend who, just, who lives in New York City and uh, wanted to get a uh, – and has COVID and went to the drugstore to get the treatment, Larry – and they asked him his race. Yeah. Wow. I mean, so it's not just, I mean, I didn't think this idiotic policy would be enforced, but apparently it is being enforced. So well, they're, at least they're, they're deriving the information to allow it to yeah. be enforced. But by the way, this came directly from the White House. If you look at the, one of the executive orders that Biden passed early in his earliest days, you know, dozens of his executive orders, it specifically talked about making sure that health care remedies and therapeutics and so forth were uh, – the allocation of them were impacted to some degree or influenced by race. I mean, and if you go through – let's face it, every single thing that the White House talks about, what is the FDA up to? What is, what is the Federal Reserve? What is the Federal Reserve doing? They're so worried about – what are they worried about? They're worried about racial equity mm. in not only the staffing of the Federal Reserve – but, in fact, in terms of policy, I, I really think it's gone too far. And, in fact, you can see it in the polling, Larry. Um, on civil rights, uh, polling is like in the in low uh, double digits, like 13 percent approval. And it's because Hispanics, by the way, and whites really don't like what he's doing. Mm-hmm. You know, Steve, go back. I think it was in the emergency rescue bill, the $2 trillion bill last winter. There were loans. I don't recall this exactly. Oh, but the farmers. Farmers, right. Yeah. That's what I was going yeah. at. Yeah. That was based on race. It, yeah. You have I mean, to be a minority to be eligible for these farm loans. And if your skin is white, you are ineligible. So, look, what America wants is a colorblind society. <laughs> and we've just completely moved away from that. And, and Liz is right. The left obsession with race i think has gone way too far and i think most americans object to it you know we want uh to judge people by the content of their character not the color of their skin Mm -hmm. and and every federal program now is doing exactly the opposite isn't it shocking that that there's even a consideration of something like that i mean in the schools uh you know in new hampshire for example they passed a bill outlawing the teaching that uh, a kid could be outlawed teaching that kids could be shamed or um, kind of made to feel terrible about themselves because of the color of their skin. The teachers union sued against that. Mm. They don't they don't want to be prohibited from that. Martin Luther King must be turning over in his grave because, as you said, Steve, I mean, he wanted us to be colorblind and not have the color of our skin determine our uh, anything about us well this is exactly the this is new age discrimination and i think it's disgusting i mean i i just think 
people are turned off by this. And was it you? Did you just say, I mean, Hispanics are turned off by yeah, this, aren't they? I think they are because they know it isn't really race. It's not really minorities. It's African-Americans. And they. I think they're resentful that so much of the uh, attention has been paid to the plight of black Americans and not Hispanics. So I do, I do think that they, which, by the way, when you look at polling now, Hispanics are the big surprise, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in some polls, it's 50-50 Republican, Democrat. And boy, nobody expected that. So, by the way, Steve, the people who are most uh, who are most injured by the racial preferences, because there's a big case in front of the Supreme Court now on, on racial preferences at universities, but it's not whites who are the biggest victims of mm-hmm. racial preferences, it's mm-hmm. Asians. And yeah. Do you know, by the way, that the average uh, under uh, when Trump left office, the median household income of Asian Americans, Indian Americans, uh, you know, uh, Chinese Americans, Taiwanese, you know, blah, blah, blah. Hundred thousand dollars a year is the median. Mm. I mean, Asians are incredibly uh, mm. successful. By the way, they have brown skin. <laughs> this is supposed to be a racist country. So the average is about sixty-five thousand. So you're saying they're at a hundred? Yeah, you know, they're they're like ninety-eight thousand five hundred. Wow. Yeah, and they're right. higher than whites. It's higher right. than higher whites. than whites. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, even it's interesting. Even there's two uh, black African countries where immigrants from those countries have a higher average income than whites do. Hmm. So we're not a racist society. That It, yeah. it really just shows that, uh, you know, and Hispanics have the fastest increase in their incomes. Hmm. So we're doing pretty well on the race issue when you look at incomes. But, you know, Democrats really don't, liberals don't want to hear about that, Steve. They don't, they don't. want the facts. They don't want to think things are better because it's such a useful uh, the grievance issue is such yeah, a, a useful course. political hammer of for course. them. It's discouraging. Well, Steve, uh, speaking of facts, uh, Biden's presser yesterday after the jobs report, he he attacked us. He said supply siders and so-called yeah. growth people are wrong. All mm-hmm. we do is make the rich richer. And yeah. he says he's got a new plan. He's got a new policy, which I said, yeah, it's inflation. It's the highest inflation in 40 years. <laughs> But, I mean, he he attacked you, Steve Moore, almost. I mean, I think he was ready to put your name in there, but it wasn't in the teleprompter. Yeah, and he said how well workers are doing. His big problem is that the report that came out yesterday, uh, uh, let's see, wages are up over the last year 4.65%. Seven, yeah, yeah. But, but inflation is up 6.9%, and that is a that means workers' paychecks under Biden are shrinking in terms of purchasing power. Well, he's got an entirely different new economic approach. That's what he said. Larry, your article in The Sun right now is, is very good on that, I have to say. Yeah, well, I took him to task. Um, I think he was going after Steve Moore. I think he had Steve singled <laughs> right out. Next next time he's gonna next time he's gonna name names, but it wasn't in the teleprompter. Happy New Year, kids! You're both Happy wonderful. Steve Moore, Liz Peak, thanks ever so much. Talk soon. See you soon, folks. That's gonna wrap it up. I'm Larry Kudlow. Please join us during the week, Fox Business, four to five p.m. The show's called Kudlow, and we will see you on radio next weekend. <laughs>